Okay, so before we get into our second episode, or technically our third episode on Zombies and the Undead, um, I wanted to stop for just a moment and break down the reasons why people like the zombie genre in the first place. Yeah. So before we jump into the proper episode, I just want to go over this really, really quickly. As far as I can tell, because I have studied fucking zombies my entire goddamn life, and I, yep. I love them. You're a fan. Yeah, a l- little bit. I put I put the fan and fanatic. Yeah. Um, but there are four general reasons why we like the zombie genre. And the first one, of course, is horror. But the horror that we get here is not jump scares. You can't do that in D&D anyway. The reason they fit so well is because of dread, the oncoming horde, or disgust with body horror. Yeah. So these are the two things to lean into if that is why your party likes zombies. So if you know your table as a dungeon master and you're designing zombies, know what they're in for, know what they want, and so you can plan appropriately. So dread and or disgust. Also, they want to be heroes. Heroism is a big part of this. They want to be beating the odds, Mm -hmm. right? I myself killed 12 zombies this round. Feels really good to say. Take down the ogre zombie. That counts as one. Yeah, right. But also, uh, they want to show their ingenuity. They want to come up with a way to outsmart the dumb moving horde. I ran up the stairs and then destroyed them behind me. I dropped a wall of fire in front of them they had to walk through. Mm -hmm. Right? They want those heroic moments of doing these awesome, amazing things. Next up, very close to that heroism, is the survivalist idea. This is the reason I like zombies the most, I think. Yeah, and this is the reason that a lot of people do. Um, and it, it, But it comes down to, in D&D, resource management and escape tactics, right? The idea of how to retreat, where to go next as the wave comes at you. Yeah. Right? And the resource management is not just spell slots and hit points. When it's a zombie horde, I will start to ask people... Um, how many arrows do you have? Now it matters. Yep. How many rations do you have? Because they may try to hide it and wait it out, right? These questions start to matter. And so I ask them, look hard at your character sheets. Because this will be a dwindling resource because everyone flees in the zombie apocalypse. Yep. There are no shops to go to. <laughs> and the final thing, of course, and this one sits kind of separate from the rest. And so know if it's right for your party is the idea of comedy. Now, you can use gallows humor, right? The the severed zombie head that sits there and tries to, to bite Chatter at you. Chatter teeth, yeah. Right? But it all comes down to absurdity. It's a perversion of the body horror that I talked about before. Um, the idea of zombies walking off a cliff and bouncing or splatting or whatever it is. And it often comes down to your pacing and your language. Which brings me to my final point. When you are, um, this is not one of the four themes. Yeah, you but lied to me. You said there were four things. There, there's there, five. there are four things, but my final point is, no matter what you're doing, remember, the rules for horror are the same for the rules for comedy. It is about timing, it is about pacing, and it is about using the rule of three. You're in there for the surprise. When you see the punchline coming, it's not effective. When you see the scare coming, it's not effective. So, increasing the intensity of the joke or the scare tends to work best in threes. You uh, establish it at the beginning, then you raise the stakes, and then you punch with it at the end. Yeah. Whether it's the absurd zombies or the horror zombies, that's the most effective way I've found to uh, run your zombie horde, which is, it has no intelligence, it's not like the other hordes, so it's going to feel very different. This is the most effective way to use them. Know the themes and know your players and what they expect. 
It's a Mimic, the roundtable Dungeons and Dragons discussion podcast, where you never know what you're going to get. Welcome to another episode in our conversation on mob mentalities, where we look at some of the stinking human no stinking humanoids. I'm looking at a stinking humanoid right now. Welcome to another episode in our conversation on mob mentalities, where we look at some stinky humanoids out there that can make up the enemy armies in Dungeons and Dragons. I'm Dan, and with me today is Adam, and this episode is called Zombie Hordes, Moans, Groans, and Haunting Tones. That one was actually good. I like that one. You just like it because it rhymes. It's just too simple. When it's a pun, you don't like it. When they rhyme, you're totally fine. Yeah, pretty much. You're going to love the underwater I like, shit. I, I like poetry. I, I hate shitty Adam humor. We reached out to our army of friends and allies to help us break down what a zombie horde looks like in 5th edition. We covered the stats and details last episode for the basic zombie, the DMG templates, the Ash Zombie, the Greater Zombie, the Husk Zombie, the Husk Zombie Burster, the Icewind Cobalt Zombie, the Strahd Zombie, and the ever-terrifying Crawling Claw. We've even covered Zombie Beholders and Death Tyrants in our second Beholders episode. But now we're covering all the other bigger zombie entries from the published 5e material, and it doesn't get much bigger than the granddaddy of the undead, Orcus. So, Adam... We really went to task last week on describing generic zombie hordes. Medium and, humanoid zombies. Yeah, right? with, with rotting holes and decayed flesh. But in D&D lore, there is one person, one guy, who is just straight up all about undead. And that is the demon prince, Orcus. Vecna. Orcus. 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 Vecna's not a demon prince. He's just a really evil dude that happened to become a god one day. When he became a god, he he didn't descend to one of the lower planes, did he? Um, uh, depends on which lore you talk to. Yeah, okay. Right? He's been a god a couple of times, so it's... He's it's gone a, from god to demigod to just an evil lich to god again. I love a just an evil lich. Right? Well, Yikes. I mean, really, he is just an evil lich. He just so happened... I think the current meta is... He just so happened to find the Starstone, which has made him a god. There's like that one magical item that if you find and go through the trials and attain, you can become a god. It's the same reason why... Uh, is this a critical role thing or is this... No, this is this is like actual level fifth of ed lore. lore. Fifth yeah, ed okay. lore. Um, there's, uh, there's another god. Uh, Jeffrey. No, not Jeffrey. Um, he's the drinking and partying and luck god. Terry. Now we'll go with it. The God Terry. But he's another guy who f- fell through a bunch of things. It'll come to me later on in the episode, and I'll just shout it out in the middle of a sentence. It'll be great. Probably when I'm in the middle of making a solid point. Probably. Or a soft, flaccid point. I do not understand that concept. I need to go to a doctor. See a doctor. Yeah. 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 It's been longer than four hours, but Anyway, so today we're going to talk about Orcus. Now, we did talk about Orcus um, in our Warlock Patrons episode way back when. Go there to get some inspiration for your warlocks when it happens to be... When he's a patron? When he's a patron. We're going to be doing a little bit of a deep dive more into his lore and and where he comes from and where he is. Okay? So, uh, Orcus, I decided to start with the looks because when you come to these demon lords, this is where I like to start just to get that initial impression. He is... You'll pull out the centerfold and unzip? Yeah, pretty much. Uh, He is a... 20 foot, 30 foot tall, bloated half goat man with a decayed goat skull for a head, a large corpulent decaying body that is oozing and rotting at all times. 
um, and his bottom half is that of a goat. So he's kind of like an evil satyr. Just big and rotting. And fat. He's and pretty fat. bloated and shit too, yeah. right? And like, it's not like he's just eating a bunch of stuff and it's like he's not me after going to Uncle Denny's for lunch, right? Which is a local buffet that no one will understand. Nobody will. Yeah. And I don't even think some of the people who live here will understand that reference. Yeah. But anyways, um, really shitty food, but cheap. So you eat a lot of it. Anyways. Is it greasy? Oh, the greasiest. Like like, like the best shitty food? Oh, uh, I remember being able to see my reflection in the mashed potatoes. That is a disgustingly amazing. Yeah. Anyways, so uh, he has this, it's like uh, a corpse left out in the sun too long level of bloat. Like it's big, it's bursting at the seams. Like if something a bit too sharp would poke him, you think he might explode. But of course he's Orcus and that's not going to be the case. Anyways. Um, he has flaming eyes of hatred uh, flaring within this goat skull, that like demonic goat skull that he has <laughs> as a head. Yeah. Um, the thing about him that is truly imposing is he is a CR 26 if you were to fight him. Now, we will cover a deep dive into his mechanics later because there's a lot to talk about. Another time. We're not getting into it this episode. Exactly. But... There's some things like the fact that he's a CR-26 we will be going over today. Now, Orcus is also known as the Demon Prince of the Undead or the Blood Lord. He lives on Ner- or sorry, he lives in Narratir, which is a walled citadel of the undead on Thanatos, which is his lair of the abyss that he runs. Um, it is surrounded, this Narratir, this city he runs, is surrounded by a moat fed by the River Styx. Um, all of the walls, we mentioned this in the Warlock episode, all the walls and, and, um, decorations of this place are flesh or bone or like the carpets are woven hair, right? Like there's just this. It's made of people. It's made of people. Dinner is soiling green. Anyways, um, he, it does say about Neratir that it is eerily silent except for the sounds of near-constant fighting amongst the undead ranks that roam aimlessly through its streets. Cool. Yeah. Now, Orcus's goals are the end of life in all of its forms and the replacement of it with um, immortal unlife subservient solely to him. All stars, light, and goodness are extinguished Every, like the concept of hope is forgotten entirely in Orcus's grand plan. So it's just oblivion and despair as far as you can see. It's just oblivion and despair as far as you can see. But not stillness. He wants everything to be undead and subservient to him. Um, He views life as this great noise that is an affront to him any sort of life or light or activity or i think this guy just has a headache yeah right um the way that they write orcus in there is he is they really write him into being one of the more powerful demon princes oh yeah he's tied with demogorgon right he's tied he's tied with demogorgon um and in my personal opinion and adam you're gonna fight me on this he's not far from asmodeus in power if, uh, raw power? No, I would say that they're that they're e- equal. Uh, Asmodeus. Oh, Asmodeus is the master schemer, so he's going to come out because he, of intelligence yeah. along the line. He's the Batman of yeah. fucking villains, right? You're never going to win. But there's a there's an interesting dichotomy to Orcus that I wanted to bring out and have a little discussion with, and it is this 
um, abyssal, chaotic, evil demon prince wanting above everything else order. Yeah. He wants above everything else for everything to be quiet and... It's interesting that you say it's about order because he's not lawful. He's chaotic evil. Yeah. And, and most undead are neutral evil. Uh, yeah, yeah. So there's not a whole lot of law to be found there. If you want lawful evil, you're looking for, like, with undead, you're looking for, like, liches, right? Well, but, I don't I don't think he's necessarily, like, the, the I'll make a deal with you level of lawful. But he is someone who likes order and has his own code that he follows. And, I mean, his own code is whatever means gets to this desolation he's good with. But... I think that his goal is order, but he's just chaotic in getting it. Yes, and and that could be one of the reasons why he's equal with Demogorgon and not above Demogorgon in power. Because Demogorgon is madness and craziness and, and just complete unhing- unhinged chaos. Yeah. Whereas Orcus, I mean, he has logic to him in a way. I uh, I don't know. I don't necessarily agree with that. I think that he's a force of nature. I don't think that there's a scheme or a plan or a plot. I think that he is prone to raging and pulling out his wand and wiggling it around and making more undead babies, right? Like he is going to be the force of pure evil that is stomping his way through a battlefield. Yeah. It's not uh, Asmodeus who's sitting back on a throne at the back of the army. Or Demogorgon, who has just got distracted by a balloon over there, right? Like, Orcus is going to be in the midst of this as a general, just fucking things up. And every time that one of his undead horde kills somebody, Orcus is there to raise them back up again, right? Oh, like, and almost immediately. We'll get into that in just a moment. Because there are mechanical ways he does that. Anyways, um, before we start talking about Orcus's favorite weapon and, and the effect he has on the area around him... I do want to talk about the humanoid followers of Orcus that are not undead. These are his cults. Now, this is one of the reasons why I think Orcus leads more towards this um, lawful side. Because a lot of his followers, a vast majority of his followers, are heretics and blasphemers who who think that the gods as we know them are unjust and cruel. They resent divine order. They resent being held to the whim of the gods. And thus want to be against them and the person they run to is orcus all right so hold on i'm gonna i'm gonna pause you everything that you've told me about orcus means that he's an anarchist he's tearing the system down yes that's chaos to me but i've said this in the past and i fully believe this with the exception of yinogu which i mean those cultists are just fucking crazy yeah and demogorgon because literally madness literally madness if you are a cultist It does not matter what the alignment of your patron or your god is. You must be lawful to be able to follow them. Yes. There are rules. So while cultists are lawful, I think that uh, that, um, Orcus is sitting there. It's like uh, anonymous, right? Yeah. Uh, Online. They want to create balance and tear down the capitalist patriarchy, all this shit, right? Like they want to, they believe in Fight Club, right? They're Project Mayhem, right? And it is Project Mayhem, but there are rules. The first rule of Project Mayhem is, right? Talk about Project Mayhem. And so you are not truly chaotic if there are rules, but the person in charge is looking to sow chaos and can be chaotic. Tyler Durden was fucking crazy. Yeah. But his followers had a method. Therefore, I think Orcus's chaotic evil should be reflected a little bit more as him 
on a whim, wiping out legions. Yeah, like, okay. Stomping and full of rage, the fiery eyes and whatnot. Really lean into that. Um, and uh, but it's his followers that should be that should be um, this lawful, rigid. This is how we we move forward under Orcus. Yeah. Um, his followers are also those who are willing to exchange pain for devotion. Right. So they. Also Terry. Well, yes and no, because these guys want absolute painlessness. They seek a sense of euphoric nothingness, right? And they see Orc as the the way to do it. They get rid of all of their emotional, physical, spiritual pain in payment to the devotion that they give to Orcus. So um, those who unexpectedly lost a loved one are also going to be part of this, who see the ability and the chance of just seeing their loved one, whether or not they are undead as being a boon and worth the cost of their souls. Because to become a cultist and a follower of uh, Orcus is to be completely willing to become undead yourself. Now, if you do not, if you turn from this, if you have second thoughts, it's still going to happen. Once you sign on the dotted line, it's done. You just become a lesser form, like a ghoul or a zombie, um, as opposed to like as uh, opposed to like a lich or a skull lord or a death knight. Sure, okay. right? Um, Orcus kind of has this uh, pecking order amongst his followers, and it's just those who sow enough discord, those who kill enough people to add to the uh, legions of his armies. Now, with any sort of cult, there's going to be a madness effect. Now. In Mordenkainen's, we see this breakdown of this, um, really there's five options, but it's a D100 table of a madness table. Some highlights are, you are compelled to make the weak suffer, and you are awash in the awareness of the futility of life. Lovely. Yeah. Um, Jesus Christ, it sounds like my fucking grade 10 poetry. Yeah, uh, if, if you are, uh, if you struggle with depression, don't be a... Uh, cultist of cultist Orcus. of Orcus. Well, I, I think that that probably draws you in. You fucking know that that Trent Reznor is a bard of Orcus. Oh yeah, for sure. Now, Adam, earlier you did mention Orcus's wand. This is a artifact level weapon, and we do want to talk about it here because hey, it could pop up in your games. The wand of Orcus is a. If Orcus's wand pops up in your games, you should run to splash damage. <laughs> no, actually, but. The Wand of Orcus is a massive warhammer, really, but it has seven charges. And um, with every single one of its abilities, it has this DC 18. Now, without any charge, the wielder of of the Wand of Orcus can animate dead, cast blight, or speak with dead at will. Cool. Okay. If you spend one charge, you could cast Circle of Death or Finger of Death. Cool. If you spend two charges, you get to cast Power Word Kill. Nice. Now, again, all these are to DC 18, okay? Now, as with all wands, it does regen charges to a minimum of four charges at dawn. But I do have a question for you, Adam. What does dawn look like on Thanatos in Neratir, Orcus's home? What does dawn look like in the X-Layer of the Abyss? She's probably pretty ugly. I bet she's undead. Still a witch, though? Yeah, uh, she was never a witch. She was never a witch? She was never a witch. I, I It's funny. I was just making a general fucking pun there. Yeah. But you went to Buffy. Yes, I did. Yeah, and she was never a witch. 
She oh. casts spells like a human does because she is the key. She is not a witch. Okay. Anyways, before we move on to the big ability of the wand, I do want to talk about just how hard this thing hits. It's going to hit with a 19. A plus 19 a to plus hit. A plus 19 to hit. Um, it's got 10 foot reach because, I mean, he's a big dude. It, that makes sense. Yeah, his big swinging warhammer's got 10 feet foot long yeah that makes yeah. perfect sense and he's, is the head of it particularly bulbous it is and has like a green skull on it that oozes green ooze well man you do you and kind of drools a little bit anyways um it does also do bludgeoning damage quite a hefty chunk of bludgeoning damage and necrotic damage of course it does and he gets to hit with it twice around so all of this checks with that now the Key ability of the wand is not the spells, it's not the hard-hittingness of it. It is the fact that you could use an action to conjure undead up to 300 feet radius around you, as many as you as you want, as long as their um, hit points don't exceed that of about two level 20 barbarians. Well then. Yeah, so that is, by the way... A fuck ton of zombies. A fuck ton of zombies. Um, now, and just so you know, 300 feet is roughly two football fields. Yeah. So in a four football field diameter centered around Orcus. Can you imagine how many crawling claws that is with one D4? Every single square is filled. Anything that is unoccupied within that space, he could just, as an action, uh, once a day, summon all these zombies. Thank God it's once a day. Yeah. However, they're only around... Until he wills them to go away, dismisses them, or they're destroyed. Which means the next day at dawn, if they haven't been destroyed and he hasn't decided to get rid of them, he'll just make more. Yeah, you can't lay siege to him. He'll win. Yeah, because he will just summon more and more and more undead. And by the truckload. I'm not even, like, from his perspective, I'm not summoning, like, three liches. I'm doing the crawling claw, like the wave. I the mean, action I've, economy alone. I've got time. Like, yeah. Yeah, I'll, I'll do a couple waves, but I mean, sure, three liches, why not? I mean, wave four is three liches. I'm I'm doing the, the massive horde first. The other thing that really, really gets me about this is that the limitation is on the amount of hit points, yeah. not the CR. I know. I like that. I like that as well. It is weird because, I mean, a lich doesn't... In retrospect, have a ton of hit points, but it'll mess up your party something quick, right? Same with the Skull Lord. Same with, uh, there's, uh, what is it, Bone Claw? Yeah, a Bone Claw will fuck you up. Yeah, right? Like, these things will mess you up. Now, on top of this attack, on top of the wand, on top of everything else, Orcus himself casts as a 17th level caster with a handful of spells. Now, the DC for these are going to be uh, level 23, but he could cast Chill Touch at will, which as a 17th level caster... That's a cantrip, of course he can. Yeah, but it'll be 48 damage because it's 17th level. Sure, yeah. Um, and Detect Magic at will. Three times a day each, he could cast Create Undead, which... Why? That doesn't make sense with the... I mean, it makes sense for Orcus, but why would he ever use that and not use his wand? I mean, he could... Use his he, wand and then do it three more times as just the spell? Yeah. Like, yeah, I guess not? it makes sense. He, remember, he can animate... Yeah, too, right? So um, he can also dispel three times a day and then once a day. And this is the thing that I love the most. He could cast Time Stop. Cool. That one's out of left field and adds a ton of danger to this monstrosity. Yeah, it really does. Right. So um, as you guys can see, Orcus is um, 
His entire goal of death and destruction, he is willing and able to grab it and drag it into reality himself. That's that kind of that's kind of the point I'm trying to get across with this guy. So, do you have any other questions about Orcus, about who he is, about any of that? I want to know the history of Orcus. I'd like to dig into the lore of him at some point, but we're going to do a deep dive on Orcus at some yeah. point. Like, we're really going to get into his entire lore through all of the editions and see what makes him taking shit at a later date, right? Yeah. But, um, no, that's he's essentially the biggest, baddest necromancer Demon. of all time as well, right? Like, yeah. that's every necromancer. I feel like uh, is borrowing from his playbook, right? Yeah, I I would say like as a DM, if I was going to run Orcus himself, I'm definitely giving him like tenth level spells, and just he can just do shit with necromancy that nothing else in existence can do. Yeah, honestly, I'm just gonna have him raise a graveyard because he fucking can, right? Yeah. Like I don't need anything more than that. Yeah. Um. Now, if he was to raise a graveyard. There is an interesting rule that we find in 4th edition that I do want to talk about briefly. Sure. And this is something both you and I have said on the podcast multiple times that we like doing, but hey, we're going to break down here. So if you ever wondered exactly how minions run, you're going to find it in the Undead episode, second Zombies episode. (laughs) Yeah, we've talked about this specifically with Zombies more than once. Yeah, so... The reason why we want to talk about minions with zombies is zombies, more than any other mob, fit this role of the one hit point monster, right? Yeah. Now, the reason why the one hit point is you want to build minions, the the idea of a minion, as just a large um, wall of force just to give your players a lot of numbers to deal with. You want them to be relatively easy to kill, hence the one hit point. You want them to be relatively low impact. That's why you're going to be using standard zombies. And you want them to give this overwhelming force feel to your party as you're playing them. Okay. Now, in 4th edition, minions were a very specific mechanic. They had one hit point each. They had a specific level of damage that they could do each. Although that changed depending on the CR of the minion. They almost always rolled a plus zero initiative. Regardless of what the base monster stats were, they rolled a plus zero initiative. That makes perfect sense to me. Right? And then the thing I I like the most about them, because they have one hit point, if an attack misses them, say like they succeed on the dexterity save for a fireball, they don't take damage. Well, in theory, they take half damage, but it's only half a hit point round down. Right. So except in D D it's in five E it's round up, right? Minimum one. Well that would still take it out. So specifically minions, I go, nope. If they the make area the save, of effect and whatnot, if they've got a save to make where they would take damage. Yeah. And they and they succeed on the save, they're still up. They're still up. If they fail on the save, they die. So here's a nasty thing about why we do this with zombies, is because remember, they can pop back up at one hit point. Yep. So every zombie essentially becomes a minion version of themselves Mm -hmm. uh, at the end, or they have the potential to be uh, at the end of every single um, encounter, really, where they drop. So one of the things that I love about minions as well is I don't have to do fucking math as a DM. (laughs) And oftentimes um, when I roll saves and whatnot, I don't roll... I'm not going to roll a save for all 16 zombies that got hit with the fireball, for example, right? That's an insane amount of roll. You're going to do that for that for that for and that for. Well, maybe even that ha- that eight and that eight, right? 
I, I won't even do that. I'll roll 4d4. And, oh, it's nine. Nine of them died. All right. Yeah, that makes sense, too. Right. I, I, I'm i still hitting the probability. I could still technically roll high. I mean, it's not it's not perfect. And it does kind of hedge the bet in my favor. Because if I were to, let's say, <clears throat> let's say I roll a d20. Right. Let's say there's 20 enemies and I roll a d20. I have a 5% chance of doing that. Yeah. But if I've got 5d4, the percent, the probability of me rolling, I mean, you four or five fours is insane. Yeah. Like it, it just will not happen. So I'm hedging my bets by doing that to keep some minions alive. But that just means they get to walk in and mop them up with flurry of blows or the fighter multi attack yeah. or a huge rain of arrows from a, from whoever. Like it, there it, are ways. Yeah. There are ways to wipe them out. And I like the idea of having to mop up the handful of assholes in the you know after the battle's done. <laughs> um, but it is worth pointing out that they get all of the same abilities and stats as the base level creature. Yeah, their attacks are going to be the same. Their their uh, saves are going to be the same. Their ability scores are going to be the same. The difference is they have one hit point and they basically get evasion. Yeah, kind of, right? right? So, I don't know. I I really like this. I think it's a lot of fun. And your guys feel like superheroes doing this. Mm-hmm. And it gives me the opportunity to drop 150 zombies on a battlefield, have them wipe out half of them and go, fuck, I'm out of spell slots. And there's that resource management I was talking about, right? Exactly. So, if you want to know more about zombies, I recommend you guys go back and check out episode 36, which was uh, boning up on the undead. You're welcome. Yeah. Or check out our Halloween special, uh, our Halloween special from last year to know more about Orcus um, in the Warlock Patrons episode, Patronizing Demonstrations. You're welcome. Yeah. So um, before we get into anything else, it's time to reiterate again that D&D zombies are not, hear me, are not plague zombies. They're magical. They're not going to be able to bite you and turn you. Is basically what we're trying to say here. They are. We went into this at length last episode. So now let's instead focus on who, besides Orcus, makes the zombies. Terry's still chilling out in a bar in Greyhawk, looking to drop some knowledge bombs on us. So let's go to Terry. Well, thanks, Adam and Dan, for passing it back over to me. I'm still over here at the Green Dragon Inn, where I've decided that a life of sobriety is the way to go and spending all night hanging out with various loose individuals and getting into all kinds of trouble is not the way to go for me so it's the straight and narrow from now on i'm gonna have a quick guinness with breakfast to take the edge off and i'll be back on the road to my mission but before we do that i want to speak to you about necromancers perfect for me i love necromancers it's another it's another area of this DD game where i think that we're uh, we're getting stuck into a single trope maybe with one or two variations but ultimately still going down the same line remember necromancers that use death and undeath as as a tool in the same way that some people would argue that money is not a commodity money is a tool in the same way a necromancer might argue that life and death death is not or undeath is not the end that it is a tool that we can use no matter what your mission is and the best way to get creative with a necromancer i feel is to just forget that you want to build a necromancer when you're building your character. Just just put that to the side for a second. And as we go through the stats, as I start to, to get a little deeper into it, keep that same mentality of just forgetting it's a necromancer when you're building the character, and I'll show you how you can get a little bit more creative with it. But necromancer as an NPC, the standard stat block that we see, we're going to see a medium humanoid, any race, any alignment, 
that's important. Necromancers are not necessarily evil, and I don't think you should play them as evil all the time. They just have a, a different understanding of the world. It, it doesn't mean that they're wrong. A lot of people would say they are wrong, but not necessarily. You know, who decided that you were right? Um, but let's look at their armor class. You know, it's fairly standard. Okay, we're, we're looking at 12 here, but you can bump that up with some mage armor. Standard hit points is 66. That's 12d8 plus 12 in old money. Speed 30 feet, but then let's look at their stats themselves. Okay, so all of their physical stats um, are not lower. Strength is lower, but the con and dexterity surprisingly is higher than average. Higher than average, which which kind of surprised me because their wisdom and their charisma is a little bit lower, but their intelligence being their highest stat, 17. That's a plus three modifier. Saving throws, we have intelligence and wisdom. Skills, arcana and history. It kind of makes sense. I mean, I guess you could maybe put religion in there, but but also maybe not. And I'll leave that to the clerics, I suppose. Um, damage resistances, necrotic. For passive perception, we have 11. And any four languages for this NPC by the standard stat block. Any four languages. That is interesting. That is interesting. That's something that you can play with. I love the use of language in D&D, &D, and I won't beat this dead horse now. But uh, I, I think it is dumbed down. It's watered down a lot because there's such easy ways around it by using tongues, for example. Or, it's, uh, or you know, overusing telepathy in some cases. Uh, but I, I think there's a huge area of this game to be explored, um, and that is languages. So having any four languages for me is a lot of fun. Challenge rating of nine for these guys. Let's look at their spellcasting. Necromancer is a 12th level spellcaster. Its spellcasting ability is intelligence, so that's a spell save DC of 15, and it's plus 7 to hit with spell attacks. And the uh, the Necromancer has the following wizard spells prepared. So for cantrips, we're going to see Chill Touch, Dancing Lights, Mage Hand, and Mending. Okay, sure, like cantrips, I, I never have too many problems with anyway. First level, False Life, Mage Armor, Grave Sickness. I think that lines up. Second level, Blindness, Deafness, love that spell, great necromancy spell, Ray of Enfeeblement, and Web. Uh, yeah, I have no problems there either. Everything is lining up here. What I worry about is because some of the titles of these spells, when you hear like Ray of Sickness, it, it leans you down towards that Disney type evil guy where all the lime green stuff starts showing, you know, with like Ursula and Jafar and those kinds of people. It kind of puts you off down that path, but don't be, don't be swayed by these titles. Uh, third level, Animate Dead, Bestow Curse, Vampiric Touch. Fourth level, Blight, Dimension Door, Stone Skin. Fifth level, you got Bigby's Hand, Cloud Kill. Of course, sixth level, Circle of Death. Great spells to play with there. And uh, you got a combination of different abilities where you can get creative. You don't feel like you're getting um, sent down one path, like you're just the blaster or the healer or something. Necromancy spells provide you a lot of different, um, a lot of different things you can do. You can you can do damage, but you can use things like blindness, deafness. It's a spell which I think again is hugely overlooked. That's essentially just manipulating the environment, right? It's a, it's but but for one person, you've you've changed the situation for one person, and it can be an important person. So it's a spell I think is overlooked. An ability. Ability that necromancers have is Grim Harvest. They get to do it once per turn. So when a necromancer kills a creature that is either a construct, sorry, neither a construct nor undead, with a spell of first level or higher, the necromancer regains hit points equal to twice the spell's level, or three times if it is a necromancer spell. Necromancy spell. Um, that's important. Don't overlook that. I think uh, you know, especially with lower level enemies. You know, that's a time where you can keep stacking those hit points back if you've taken a little bit of damage. You know, it's the, the principle of killing the chickens to gain experience, I think, but for some hit points. Don't forget about that one, because it might not seem like you're getting a lot back, but you're going to get a lot back over time with that. Actions, Withering Touch, it's a melee spell attack, plus 7 to hit, reach 5 feet, 
one creature, standard damage is going to be 5 necrotic damage, and that's 2d4 in old money. Okay, so a second ago I was saying, don't forget that when you're building this character, or you're, you're creating this NPC, just forget that they're a necromancer for a second. Go through everything else, whether they're a butcher, a baker, a candlestick maker, what their ideals are, what their flaws are, what their background, do they come from nobility, do they come from whatever, what do they want to achieve in the world, what's the impact they want to have, do they just want to walk around looking hot like a Fashion Nova model, or do they want to have a bigger impact in the world, in addition to looking like a Fashion Nova model. Once you've built the character, as you would any other character, then slide in the necromancy part as a tool. This is their person's vessel to achieve what they want to achieve. It is not their only thing about them. It's not that they are a necromancer so they walk around looking like they haven't eaten protein in five years and that they're withering away. No, that's just a side element to it. So my advice, build the character, build everything about the character, have the character in completion and then add the idea that they are a necromancer and that is just their tool. I think you'll have a lot more fleshed out character if you do it that way. And that's all from me for today. I'll send it back over to Adam and Dan. Thanks for having me, guys. See you later. So necromancers are not necessarily evil by the rules as written. No. How do you feel about that? I'm okay with it. Yeah, me too. I absolutely love that. Uh, necromancers, necromancy is about manipulating life. It is not about raising the dead. While that is a side of it, it's like chapter six in your fucking textbook on necromancy, right? Like there's all sorts of, of health and other things that you get yeah. from this. The Often when you're looking at the good and evil spectrum, you're looking at the sanctity of life yep. side of things. And that's why a lot of people go, oh, these people are raising people from, de from the dead. Um, in mockeries of life, they care nothing for the sanctity of life. Thus, they are evil. I, I not necessarily. I, I I don't I don't buy into that, especially as seeing a lot of this idea that necromancy is where a wizard will go for healing magic. I will say this though: if they are raising the dead, there are a number of spells out there that indicate that the zombie will stay under your control until uh, whatever trigger. The zombie is still neutral evil, even though you may be chaotic good, for example. Yeah. This is an issue if it gets away from you. So necromancers, I think, would, if they're not evil, swing chaotic. Because of that, if they're raising the dead, that's a fucking gamble. Yeah. Right? And I mean, they are literally robbing graves. So, and that's against the law. Uh, sure. But I mean, <laughs> you, you can go to old temples and raise mummies and stuff. Yeah, and, like, hit up the borders of a goblin uh, territory and just raise their graveyard up yeah yeah um the other thing terry mentioned here real quick was that language is underutilized in DD. do you agree with him i think we've talked about this at length before i think we're both on the same page language in DD is under supported yeah it's one of the things about necromancers that sounds really fun and powerful and interesting at at base level hey four languages that's a, yeah but it'll look at that polyglot it'll never ever ever come up so I just wish that they didn't give us an like a get out of free jail card with like ten different fucking spells. Oh, yeah, you got like shit. tongues and comprehend languages and shit like that. Like yeah, there's a number of ways that you can get around this. Uh, hell, just knock them down and speak with dead. Yep. Right. Be be an abyssal uh, a great old uh, yeah great old one warlock. Oh, there's a hundred ways to get telepathy and shit as well. Yeah. We're not even covering the fact that you can just hire NPC translators, right? I just <laughs> I just wish language had more of a, 
uh, function because again, it's the social tier, yeah. the role playing that is a little under supported in fifth edition. Do you have a way to make it more supported? Because I really like how 3.5 did it and made it a skill. I absolutely do not because we don't get skill ranks anymore. You would have your proficiency just like sunk into that so you'd lose it somewhere else. I mean, yeah. Um, I, I think that languages should be based on your intelligence modifier. That's how many languages you know. Okay. Um, and uh, and I think that you should have to put in a minimum amount of time to learn a new one, right? So whether it's through a textbook or just by being around uh, people so that when you get your ability score increase you can choose to learn the local language. You're doing a Giants campaign. You can learn Giant, yeah. right? If your okay. intelligence score goes up. I'd also want to remove a lot of the ways that they've nullified the effects of language. Yeah. Or at least make uh, make their gateway a little bit more. Well, that's one of the things that I did in, in my latest campaign was I said, hey, there are different levels of runes and magic and whatnot. And you can go ahead and cast tongues and comprehend language and all that shit that you want. But if someone is speaking the words of the gods or you're trying to read these specific runes, you just can't. Yeah. These are not a language that you that your magic can tap into. Yeah. So I would use that probably for things like deep speech and dark speech and some of the weirder languages out there. But I mean if you want to be able to talk to a lizard folk or a knoll or whatever, go nuts. Um, the next thing that I want to point out that Terry brought up, uh, was that this is a 12th level spellcaster. Okay. So why does that matter? It says every time that someone's a spellcaster, what level they are. And it matters because of the fucking cantrips they get. If it's a damage dealing cantrip, that shit scales up. For example, the necromancer's chill touch levels up in power. It's a CR nine NPC, 12th level spellcaster, which means they're doing three D eight necrotic damage. Not 1d8. I see a lot of Dungeon Masters get this wrong. Yeah. Um, this is going to go with all of your uh, um, all of your cantrips, but also will bleed into your what level spell slots you have and what spell selection you have with the caster as well. Yeah. Right? If they're casting Magic Missile, they can blow higher spell level slots to make that more powerful. They are just as able to do that as your players. So DMs, if you are dealing with a high level caster like this, give yourself a moment to understand what spells it has, how many spell slots it has, what those spells can do. And remember, wizards, spellcasters thrive on versatility. So they are going to make that first level spell more powerful if that's going to do what they need to more than that sixth level spell at base level. I think just about any spellcaster is going to lean into that mentality, right? Yeah, which means DMs, you got to go that way as well. Put in put in your work there. Um, now, again, spellcasters putting in the work, understanding things. We're going to hit that same point we've hit a few times, and this is the AC of this caster. Now, it says that the AC is 12, but 15 being with mage armor. This is right in the stat block, which goes to show that the designers of this game assume... That this guy knows well enough at hand to cast Mage Armors on himself before combat starts. It's got to be a foregone conclusion that a spellcaster would live longer and it doesn't take concentration. It's This is the opening move for yeah, him, right? Yeah, and if you cast at a higher spell levels, it lasts hours, up to a full day. Yep. Right? Now, this also means that the CR that this guy is, the CR9, is based off a Mage Armor empowered AC. Yeah, otherwise it would be a lot less than that. Exactly. So, Dungeon Masters, you got to make sure you are getting that Mage Armor up before combat begins. Um, and it 
kind of just has to be the first thing that the Necromancer does. You know, run, duck behind cover, and get that mage armor activated if he doesn't have it already. And then join the fight in earnest, raising dead and casting chill touch and vampiric touch and basically just a bunch of really bad touches. Yeah, you cannot... Not even touching it, Dan. Get it? Yeah, yeah. Um, you cannot assume that you can get mage armor up on the next round. It has to be the first thing you do. Yeah. Uh, especially because CR9. These, oh. guys, these guys are level 9. They're coming at you. They've got some heavy things to hit you with. You need them to miss more often. You get that Zealot Barbarian running across the battlefield getting right up to you with Mage Killer or something. You're done. Yeah. So the other thing besides Mage Armor, and I mean, that's an important thing. All spellcasters should do that. Mm-hmm. But I want to look at this Grim Harvest ability a little bit closer. Okay. Okay, so once per turn, if you kill a creature with a spell of first level or higher... You regain hit points equal to twice the spell's level, three times for necromancy spells. Yikes. Well, it's not as powerful as you may think. So, let's take a look at the actual spell damage spells that we get, right? So, I'm going to go through them really quickly. Chill Touch is a cantrip, so it doesn't count. Because the melee spell attack called Withering Touch does necrotic damage, we can assume that it's a necromancy spell, but the abysmal 2d4 damage puts it even weaker than the cantrip. So it's not going to benefit from Grim Harvest either. Yeah. Also, Raven's Sickness is a first level necromancy spell. So you get a paltry three hit points if you drop someone to zero with this. So it's not going to come up very often. Yeah. Raven Feeblement is a second level necromancy spell. So you only get six hit points. Vampiric Touch at third level gets you nine hit points. And Blight gets you 12. But Cloud Kill at fifth level only gets you 10. So you're blowing a higher spell slot for less hit points back. Yeah. Um, even the damage done from the various options with Bigby's hand are only going to get you 10 more hit points, right? So the fifth level spells that are there in the Necromancer stat block are not really going to help you with this gaining of of, uh, your life back. Circle of Death, however, gets you 18, which is by far the best. Yeah. Honestly, if it's hit points you're after, I'd look to Vampiric Touch or Blight first. The limited spell slot for Circle of Death... The poor returns for the 5th level spells means that if a necromancer is relying on he- on healing with these spells, something has gone seriously wrong. That being said, I do have to say that Cloud Kill um, is a really fun option because you can fill the area with Cloud Kill. It can kill people on many consecutive terms as long as you keep your concentration up, which means that you can, in theory, gain hit points over and over and over from the one slot. Yeah. But... If you're relying on her for damage, uh, it, but if you're relying on her for healing, you're in trouble. This is about the damage output, yeah. not about the healing possibilities. Players should learn from this and understand that if you were going to go fight a necromancer, leave your NPCs at home. Yeah. Uh, bringing fodder with you to a fight with a necromancer is only doing the necromancer a favor. Because he will kill your friend, gain hit points from it, and raise him the next round to make you fight him. Absolutely. Right? You don't want that. Leave your pet goblin that you met in the bar in first session at home that your DM made on the whim when you wouldn't look at his brooding wizard in the back corner. Leave that guy at home. Just go with you and your friends. It's going to be the best for you. So, before we move on here, I do want to hit up a quick commercial Um, Before we start breaking down some other zombies and zombie-like things. Did you hit record? Yeah, go ahead. So, 
As some of you have noticed, obviously, Dan and I launched a bit of an informal side project where we go through one of the Dungeons & Dragons publications at a time and determine the pros and cons and our overall thoughts. And the first one we did was Icewind Dale, Rime of the Frostmaiden. We went over almost every page, covering moderate spoilers for the adventure without giving the ending away. We covered things that interest players or may be useful to Dungeon Masters to get inspiration from. I always love going through the monsters and the items and the player options. I really enjoyed seeing all the different forms of the Frost Maiden and investigating everything about her frosty lair to her maiden head. Dan? What the fuck, man? I need you to take these commercials way more seriously. I show up every time with the utmost professional attitude. Ah! What? You? Professional? Yes. Professional what? Dick? At least I'm not an amateur dick. I don't... What? I... What? What? What is your problem? What's an amateur dick? Well, I don't know. Obviously, by definition, it's a dick that doesn't get paid. Does your dick normally get paid? I mean, it should. Well, I'm not sure the candidate's ready to reintroduce the penny, Adam. Go fuck yourself, Dan. <laughs> it should be getting paid in pounds, if you get what I mean. You could pound pounds. it on your own time. We're trying to record a commercial. Okay, anyway, dick, we're going to periodically continue working our way through new releases as they come. Gross. As well as discussing some of the published material from Wizards of the Coast that has already hit the shelves. There's a lot of info out there for 5th edition, but not every DM or player knows which book to pick up next, or what to expect from an adventure module. After all, there's some great additions to the library, and then there's, well, Rick and Morty versus D&D. This series is going to be sporadic and unscheduled, so keep your eyes out for these, and let us know if you agree with our assessments. We hope that you'll be able to use the series as a guideline for which books deserve your attention for your own personal needs as a D&D player. But keep in mind that they're going to be full of moderate spoilers for the adventures, and they aren't meant to tear into specific mechanics or stat blocks. As we go on, you'll be able to find previous Legend Lore episodes in a playlist on our YouTube channel, or check out the episode guide to see what books we've already covered by looking at the post on r slash it's a mimic on Reddit. Now... Let's get back to the episode, shall we? Fuck, one of these days we're going to record a normal fucking commercial. I highly doubt it. Well, whose fault is that? Mostly yours. Disagree. Welcome back. So, now that we know all about Necromancers, Orcus, and we spent last week discussing humanoid zombies and the different flavors of them, let's get into something a little meatier. Pepperina is up in the Icewind Dale, like last time, and she's got some insight into our first large-sized zombie. Thanks, guys. This is Pepperina, and I'm still here hanging out at the Lucky Liar Tavern in Lonelywood. Last night, Billy, one of the regulars here, was short on cash, so he decided to do a little raid on the necromancer's place not far from town. He figured he could take on a couple zombies. Turns out the necromancer beefed up his security with a couple of ogre zombies. Billy came back looking real rough and still didn't have the money to pay his tab. Ogre zombies are a large size undead. Which gets me thinking of things like Mr. X from Resident Evil. It's way scarier to have this large, ultra-strong thing coming at you that has no fear and just won't stop than your average zombie. Like I said, they're a large undead and they're neutral evil. They only have an armor class of 8, so they are kind of easy to hit. But they have a ton of hit points with 9d10 plus 36. Their speed is 30 feet, so pretty average, but still slower than your regular alive ogre. They have negative modifiers to 
dex, intelligence, wisdom, and charisma, but their strength and con both get a plus four. They do have a saving throw with wisdom, which gives them a plus zero, but that's still better than the negative two they would normally have. They are immune to both the damage and condition of being poisoned. They have a dark vision of 60 feet and a passive perception of eight. They do understand common and giant, but they cannot speak, and their challenge rating is a two. Like most zombies, they get the undead fortitude. If damage is reduced to zero hit points, it must make a constitution saving throw with a DC of five plus the damage taken, unless the damage is radiant or from a critical hit. On a success, the zombie drops to one hit point instead. For their actions, they get a Morning Star, which is a melee weapon attack with a plus six to hit, a reach of five feet. On a hit, it's 13 or 2d8 plus four bludgeoning damage. Now, I find it interesting that they get a Morning Star as a live ogre gets a great club and a javelin. Now, the Great Club and the Morning Star do the same damage, so as a DM, I might change that just to keep things consistent in my game. I love the idea of your party thinking they are taking care of an ogre problem, but they don't know a necromancer is following behind them raising an army of ogre zombies. It just might make them think twice about just leaving a trail of bodies wherever they go. All right. The drinking contest is starting, and I need to show these boys how it's done. So if you need to get a hold of me, you can find me on Instagram at pepperina underscore sparkle gem. Thanks, boys. Back to you. All right. So how do you justify the morning star the in the stat block? It? Yeah. I, All right. It, like the tree got broken half? Well, I mean, it's supposed to be a great club, right? Yeah. Normally. So I just assume that this thing is splintered over and over and over again. So it's got a bunch of jaggedy points. But I because it's the same amount of damage, I just... Uh, it's a weird decision by the game designers to do this without any justification, to give a better weapon. Uh, the only thing I could think of is it is more... It's the exact same damage. So it's not even like it's a better weapon. It's a better weapon in theory. Yeah. I mean, it It doesn't make sense. It doesn't. No, but I mean, there's more things that don't make sense about this guy. This AC of 8 is problematic. Like how... How do you as a DM get around this? I don't. I mean, let, let them hit him. He's fucking huge and he's slow. And I, the AC8 means he's got two rounds in him. Right? Yeah. Like, there's just nothing to him. And we know that. So you either have to throw in a bunch of these guys or give him a bunch of zombies around him to really drag this fight out so that only one person is fighting the, this giant yeah. ogre. And honestly, just by dropping the minis on the map or by describing it, you can make this thing seem way scarier than it actually is and have them fighting zombies and running away from the ogre before you ever get to it. Is this how you would bring them into your games? Like, do you have them being solo? Like, how do you bring these ugly guys into your campaign? Like, long, like, do you do you put them in the big horde and just like... It depends. If I'm, if I'm using a necromancer, if I'm using... Actually, you know what? If I'm using base zombies at all... I will absolutely use ogres. Ogres show up all the fucking time in DD. Yeah. Just base ogres. It makes sense that a zombie horde will run across one or two, or a necromancer will be able to get his hands on a corpse or two, right? So, sure. I like them as guards. I like them as brutes for low level, right? I probably am not going to use them so much at higher levels. Okay. Just because I can get more out of the action economy from a bunch of zombies, 
from eight zombies as I can for one, right? At, at level 12, you're knocking this guy down in what, an extra turn compared to a regular zombie? I, I, honestly, what this is, yeah, but I'm okay with that. Like, he takes that one extra hit. That's all he needs to be there for. Right, but I can get three extra rounds out of uh, out of eight more zombies because of the action economy. Yeah, I mean, I, I look at that because when you're running these massive hordes, sometimes rolling attacks for 16 guys doesn't take as long as rolling attacks for three guys. When I am rolling for 16 guys, I roll it out first. I will use a random number generator or I will sit there with dice and write it down. But I will roll, and I'm not kidding, 150 on a, a different, on, on a D20. And then as I'm going, I'm just crossing off. Okay, next up was a three with the plus six modifier. Nope, doesn't hit. Next up is a 17 with the plus six modifier. Oop, does hit, right? And I can just go tick, 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 tick. I technically rolled it. It is randomized. It just wasn't done at the table, but it gets us through combat faster yeah i mean there's going to be a couple interesting ways to run a horde that will come up um with this i am not a huge fan of that way but i am also often at a table where we have a digital uh play surface and thus i could just type in hey roll this attack this many times right and then a random dice generator does that that everybody can see, and that's essentially the same thing. It is. It's, it's the same thing. It's just one of them is not directly in front of your players. If you're going to do this, warn them ahead of time. Yes. And really flavor the critical misses. Because it'll make the... the every time you roll a 20 or you get, fuck, two 20s in a row, yep. they're going to be like, what the fuck? You, you, uh, <laughs> you, you've been fudging the numbers the whole time. But if you roll a one and you draw it out they will feel like bigger heroes they will like that more and they will remember the ones more compared to the rest of them so that's kind of how i i fix that uh that accusation that i've hedged my bets against them because i haven't i just i'm just rolling d20s over and over and over again okay so we talked a little last time about the zombie template that you could put on any monster but one of the things that is the most fun is applying it to a ridiculous creature Of course, we're all big fans of the Jurassic Park series here, so we're pretty stoked about the fact that two different huge dinosaurs got full zombie stat blocks in 5th edition. We get one herbivore and one carnivore. Let's jump over to Brad in the Yawning Portal to hear about our herbivore. Hey guys, Brad here, checking in from the Yawning Portal once again here in Waterdeep. I was just talking to some adventurers who were coming through, returning from an adventure that they went on, and they were telling me about a new creature that I've never heard of before. You guys might be familiar with the Ankylosaurus from Cholt, uh, found in that sort of area, but these adventurers came across a zombified version of the Ankylosaurus down in the Tomb of Annihilation. These things were really interesting to me. I'd never heard of a dinosaur of some sort being zombified before. I've heard of them being skeletons, I've heard of them just being dead, but never coming back. Apparently these things are in some ways more dangerous than their living counterparts. Um, With a CR of 3 and a decent ASC, I mean, not too hard to get by. You should be able to hit these things. They're big, but with the armor plating and protection, they might be a little bit tough to get through. Uh, They have a really high strength. They don't move very quickly. I mean, they're undead and they're big dinosaur creatures, but they are able to uh, put out a lot of damage. They're, they themselves can take a lot of damage. They've got a decent constitution modifier. They're not especially intelligent, not wise either, and incredibly uncharismatic. 
I mean, much less than their living counterpart, given the fact that, you know, there's rotting flesh falling off of these things. Uh, they're immune to poison, uh, and they can't be poisoned, obviously. And as zombified versions of themselves, they actually have possessed dark vision. Uh, like all zombies, they have the undead fortitude trait. So basically, instead of killing them outright, they'll have a chance to make a constitution saving throw to come back with one hit point. As an attack, they can make an attack with their tail. It's a 10-foot reach attack, so watch out for that. Plus 6 to hit. Does 4d6 plus 4 bludgeoning damage, so watch out. And if it hits you, you're going to have to make a strength saving throw to avoid being knocked prone by this thing. These guys are nothing to be scoffed at. They are big, they are mean, and they're going to have a decent pool of hit points. Um, so watch out for these things didn't even know this was a possibility. So if you kill an Ankylosaurus, make sure there's no necromancers around. I mean, could you imagine a necromancer riding around on the back of one of these things? Just casting spells while riding on the back of this giant zombified dinosaur? Man, that would be something to behold. But from a distance, I would not want to be the one fighting a necromancer on the back of an Ankylosaurus zombie. These things are pretty cool. I'm not sure if any of you have ever used them. If you have, let me know. Reach out to me at Clues Game Master on Instagram or uh, hit me up on the subreddit. I hang around there once in a while. Anyways, this thing just seemed too cool not to share, so check out the Ankylosaurus zombie from the Tomb of Annihilation if you have a chance. Okay, so these things are absolute bruisers, and the AT12 plus 16 hit points means that at level three, it's going to take a nice long while to knock one of these things down. But, I mean, they pay for it with that slow speed of 20 feet, which makes them more of an environmental hazard than anything else. Yeah, unless they're in the midst of the zombie horde already. Yeah. Um, having to work your way through zombies to get to one of these guys can be a pain in the ass. I like, honestly, I would love to see, like, a more intelligent undead riding one of these things. I know anytime I see a huge, large-sized thing, I want it to become a mount, but it's just cool. Yeah, I super don't like these guys as mounts. I just don't. I like them as something a little bit more vicious. Like, look, I get it. They're not super versatile at face value, okay? And one of these things seems like a slower, tougher version of the original self. Yeah. Right? Or a beefier version of just a regular zombie. But remember that this is magical undeath that has reduced it to zombie status. This is not your plague zombie. It gains dark vision and undead fortitude, but what else does it gain? You have to think about it because it gets a new mentality. Yeah. All of the same basic tactics and mentalities of a regular zombie are now applied to this gigantic herbivore, right? It's, if you turn a vegetarian into a zombie, they're still going to want to eat your flesh, right? Yeah. It's the same thing here. So the thing now becomes hostile it is a relentless murderer, and suddenly the couch propped up against the door doesn't seem like enough, does it? With that fucking yep. tail attack and the huge creature. This thing basically becomes a siege weapon. Exactly. Yeah. And I think reducing it to a mount really takes that away from how effective this thing can be. It's not just a warhorse skeleton who's going to sit there patiently. It's well, a full fucking zombie. Yeah, that's that's fair enough. The other thing to keep in mind with these things is that DC 14 strength save um, against being knocked prone is an issue. Yes. Sure, they may only move 20 feet, but if you're knocked prone, you're still using half your speed just to get up. Unless you're a rogue or a monk, disengaging and running away will use up your turn. And it will still catch you next round. If you think you need to, you don't need to disengage, well... That tail attack 
might just knock you back prone, and that's going to be the end of your movement. Yeah. You're going to have trouble getting away from this guy. Yeah. He really is. I mean, one of the things that I miss about previous editions is the trip mechanic that you could use all the time. I loved getting a whip mm-hmm. and just tripping everybody around me, especially when I get multiple attacks in, right? I go battle master. Yeah, and you just You'll scratch that itch. You just knock down six people at once, right? Yeah. This creature does the same thing, and I really fucking like that. So yeah. at face value, I looked at this originally and I'm like, God, this is just a shitty T-Rex zombie. Mm-hmm. But no, there's, there's more to it. Yeah. Also from the Tomb of Annihilation comes the Tyrannosaurus zombie. Megan, our undead expert in the crypts of Castle Ravenloft, has some insight. I had a lot of fun assigning this to Megan, and you will see why in a second. Hello, everyone. Megan here. Super stoked to continue today's conversation on zombies. And as you may know, I have spent some time here at Castle Ravenloft, where honestly, I'm afraid everything is a zombie. So I feel like this is very thematic for me. Uh, (laughs) So I know I have given a couple of feelings around some fast zombies, as well as some zombies with pocket sand. However, after reading about the Tyrannosaurus zombie, I'm quite frightened and quite interested here. So I feel you guys wanted me to talk about this one because of a certain imagery that mimics a spider's sack of eggs. And Adam knows that I damn well hate spiders. So I feel like this is a um, homage to that. So thanks very much for that, Adam. But I'm going to try and get through this as best I can. So before I explain that ability, uh, let me give you some statistical outlines here for this guy. So um, they are challenge rating of eight, so they are quite high up there. I mean, imagine you are fighting a zombie version of a Tyrannosaurus. In my mind, a Tyrannosaurus Rex dinosaur, you know, little arms, whole nine yards. And they are technically a huge undead, unaligned kind of character. So they are quite hefty, a little bit uh, harder to hit and kill. Like if you look at some of its stats, it's got a strength of seven. It's got a dex of minus two um so again not very agile think of it a dinosaur it'll probably be like tumbling around uh it's got a constitution of plus four an intelligence of minus five a wisdom of minus five and a charisma of negative three they do have a dark vision um and does have a passive perception of six um to get into his general attack capabilities uh, it does have a multi-attack where it can use a bite or a tail to attack Uh, The cool thing about its bite attack is that it can actually grapple its prey within its teeth and then restrain you. However, when it is grappling, it cannot use its spider sack ability, is what I'm going to call it right now. But before I get to that, much like most undead creatures, it does have undead fortitude. So basically, if it isn't killed by a radiant damage item or a critical hit, uh, it does have to make a DC saving throw to survive uh, up to one hit point, which is a very easy DC save to make it so it's a constitution saving throw with a dc of five plus the damage taken so can be a pretty easy thing to make depending on how hard you hit it basically but now let's get into the good stuff so the egg sack ability is what i'm calling it so the actual ability is called disgorge zombie um which happens as a bonus action not just an action as a bonus action so just keep that in mind as i go through this a regular zombie will literally come out of its belly of the tyrannosaurus rex um you do have to roll a d6 after and if you roll a one you won't be able to do this again so as the zombie if you are unlucky and roll a one on a d6 then unfortunately you won't be able to do this ability again but the probability of that happening is quite low so i feel like you would be able to use this ability throughout most of the battle that this thing exists in, right? So basically you're forever birthing zombies, which to me is kind of gross. 
hence the egg sac imagery. All right, and then if the Tyrannosaurus does die while still having this ability, you actually roll a 1d4 and see how many zombies birth from its death at the start of your next turn, which is, again, a piece of hilarious yet gross imagery to me. You know, your whole team just beats this giant dinosaur-looking zombie and they're feeling all smug about themselves and then all of a sudden, poof, a bunch of zombies explode into the area from whence this monster came, right? Ugh, just just the imagery of it just creeps me right out and I'm sure I I can just hear Adam and Dan laughing in the background while listening to this, so y'all are welcome. So my final thoughts. I hate them and I love them. What an interesting, like, big bad to have on a battlefield. And you could probably flavor text this or change this a little bit different to feel like why it would fit into your campaign, in my mind, just because it is such a very specific type of creature. It would seem weird to just throw it wherever you want to throw it, right? So it does have to have some conscious thought for a DM behind why it would be in the world or why you would be fighting this in the first place. But I just feel like it's a never-ending fear factor for your team and forces them to get creative with either taking it down quickly or finding a way to deal with the little zombie spawns that are going to continue to come through, right? All right, guys, I'm going to pass it back your way. I just want to know what your thoughts are. Do you feel this can get too out of hand on a battlefield? And how would you control that as a DM um, to kind of help your either help your characters or not help your characters or your players? For all the listeners, you can absolutely follow me on Instagram at Omega O, that's zero M-E-G-A zero, for pictures of my face and some video game memes. Otherwise, just back to you guys. Okay, so first off, we absolutely give Megan the shit that she finds creepy, and I don't care if it makes us assholes. It's fucking funny. It's hilarious. There's no no remorse at all. No. No. Looking forward to drow, Megan. (laughs) (laughs) Now, she did say something that did spark my imagination. In the text of the bite attack, it says the T-Rex zombie can't disgorge if it has a creature grappled within its bite. That implies that it's puking up all the zombies. Yeah. But Megan's obvious assumption is that these are things are wriggling free from its rotten stomach. Um, That's a lot of fun. Yeah. So from now on, I'm just going to lean into her crazy body horror nightmare fuel and ignore this. Thank you, Megan. Instead, I'm going to treat this as a CR9, not a CR8 for my purposes. It's a weak CR9, so I may be bump... I'm yep, 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 yep. So I may bump up the AC... From 11 and give it the maximum hit points of, of 13 D12 plus 52. Hell, I might just mess with the Disgorge zombie action a little bit more and roll a D8 to see if it stops instead of a D6. Or roll 2D4 and see how many zombies it spews out upon its death. Yeah, I mean, this thing really makes me want to homebrew. And yeah. frankly, I would use this guy for a mount instead of the Oh yeah, both of them work, yeah. but yeah. But I, I like this better for a necromancer. I just... I can picture a death knight riding one of these guys a little bit more than... And like just like kicking it just above its like little noodle arms and more zombies pop out of its gut. So this is what I was talking about at the beginning about the absurdity, right? Like, yes. Um, well, you know your table. Yeah. And some, some tables will love that. That'll just totally break the illusion for everybody else, right? Yeah. Um, do you consider these zombies um, that are falling out of it as part of the of the CR? Let, I want to roll initiative on this. Sure. I got an at 20. I got a 17. I lost <laughs> with a 17. Uh, I think that happened to me last episode, I think it actually. did, yeah. yeah. Um, actually, I don't consider them as part of the CR. I expect my players to realize that they're in trouble and back up as they attack from a distance. Therefore, I know it's a harder encounter, but I'm not going to account for it uh, when I'm doing my prep. The T-Rex zombie will be able to keep up with his 40-foot movement speed, 
Um, but the other zombies won't be able to. Also, the T-Rex can't use its multi-attack on the same target, which means that if your party stays mobile, this guy is pretty ineffective. And the 10-foot reach of the attacks is going to surprise the party once. But the 4d12 plus 7 bite and the 3d8 plus 7 tail will keep them aware of its power and it is going to hit with its plus 10 on each attack. So they're going to run. Yeah. They're going to break up. They're going to have it be able to only attack one person at a time. And if he grapples, he he can't bite again. That's it. Yeah. Right? He can only bite the person that he's already chewing. So put the... Remember, he's a T-Rex. He's not exactly going to reach up and grab you with those little arms. Yeah. I, can you just, I always like the idea of a T-Rex with a corn of cob. Yeah. A cob of corn. Yeah. Corn of the cob. Yeah. Cob of corn. <laughs> so, um... An ear of corn, I think, is what you were looking for. Nope. Um, <laughs> no, uh, I I don't know. I also think that the DC-17 escape check from the bike grapple is going to keep, you know, everybody a little wary. Especially when that barbarian is trying to get out and fucking can't. Yeah. Right? Rolls a 10 but doesn't have enough into the escape to get out. So for me, I don't... Uh, I also don't count them as part of the CR. However, I will use this as an opportunity to... Um, fill an encounter if I need to. Um, I know like it, it very specific, just like a normal everyday zombie is going to pop out of this thing. And that's kind of what it is on the mechanics. Yeah. Not if I'm running it, if they take this thing down and, and it's going very well for the party very, very quickly, I might throw a greater zombie in there. I might throw something else. Some yeah. Okay. Like other level of undead just to mess with it. I'm not going to change the CR because I'm only going to do that if they are doing very well against it. Right. You can just give the maximum hit points even, right? Yeah. And if they're struggling with it, then you can make the zombies that are pouring out minions. Yep. So you, the, you, can, the, you, can, you can use this to fudge, fudge this things a little, bit, a little yeah. bit, right? Like this is a great spot to do that. Um, it also doesn't say this anywhere, but I think it's only fair to say that the zombies that get disgorged during its turn, they're going to land prone and probably not have max hit points unless I'm filling in the gaps. No. Just, I mean, they've been fucking eaten. I would give them minimum hit points, not one, but no, like... No, no, but, like half? Half, yeah. So, uh, I don't know. Th- this is going to place them in the background of the encounter for me. All right? But the ones that burst from the stomach after death, no, I'd say they're standing. They're tearing their way out. They're they're going to have full hit points just because I'm, this is technically a second encounter now. I mean, it does say in the text that they have their own initiative count. But do you feel like you could justify imposing surprise condition when you roll initiative with these guys? Right? Because the players won't see this coming? No, I wouldn't. Their 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 hairs on the back of the neck are going to be up because they were already in combat. So I don't know, man. Every single party I see, they drop the monster and they all relax, sit there, and they start talking about how many spell slots do you have left? Who needs a heal? Do we loot the body? See what that guy's got on him, and then all of a sudden, brah, roll initiative. If, if it comes two. out like a turn or two later, maybe right, and then it's a new initiative. If it's right away, no, man, they're still in initiative order. Yeah, uh, I think that I'm going to try to hit them with a surprise. Yeah, that's fair. That's, that's cool. Yeah, I like that. Especially if they're right up beside the fallen corpse standing there having a conversation. Yep. My other thing with these is like, if there's one T-Rex zombie, there's a chance that there's a second one. And it's going to come towards the noise. And friends, I don't know what you know about T-Rexes, but they're not quiet animals. No. No. Right. Unless it's at the very end of Jurassic Park. Unless it's at the when very they end. tiptoe into that. They are going to draw the attention of another T-Rex zombie in the region as well. So like, or, oh. and 
other monsters that might be in the region, right? You're not you're not seeing one of these things as you guys are raiding. Actually, wait, I just had a really good idea. Raiding the like um, national, uh, sorry, natural history museum, just the fantasy natural history museum. And you know how in the one in DC, there's the like big skeleton right in the front foyer. Yeah, yeah. Make that a zombie scale, a T-Rex. I have a picture of me standing in front of that thing, like at the Smithsonian. Uh, I was like overwhelmed by how freaking awe-inspiring. I just fucking love dinosaurs. Man. Yeah. I just fucking love dinosaurs, which is, okay, here's my final nerdy thought that I want to point out. Another thing you fucking love. Yeah. Because I read all of the books very, very closely, but I mean, I take extra time with my dinos. Um, it says right in the Tomb of Annihilation uh, that you can... Uh, controlled them, which is one of the handful of like weird typos that you find in the fifth edition materials. Fucking amateur hour wizards. God, there's so few typos in there, and yeah. we've run across like three of them on the podcast so far. And I keep waiting to see. We haven't really done any deep dives into the modules yet. Oh, right? they're, they're going to be littered. I know it. I, I figure like in the actual description of the encounters that are played out, there's got to be because I keep finding them in monster stats left, right, and center. Yeah. So. Speaking of the unique zombies that are the T-Rex zombies, our good friend Jeff, the zombie knight, has recently discovered that he's trapped in Barovia with the Vishtani. And... You say Vishtani? Vishtani, yeah. Where's the H coming from there? I just have always put it there. I don't know. That's so- I'm just a walking typo. Apparently, you, you've been writing <laughs> some fifth ed books. Apparently. Um, anyway, so he's in with the Vistani. The Vistani. At the Vistani, and it sounds like he's passing the time by hearing old tales about another nasty zombavoid. Welcome to my zombavoid. <laughs> <laughs> it sounds like he's passing the time by hearing old tales about another nasty zombified creature from the deep jungles of Chult. He's going to answer what happens when you take a hyper-confrontational albino four-armed apes and make them undead. Hey, fellas. I guess I'm, well, and truly stuck here now. I've heard that Megan's around somewhere, but I haven't seen her. Maybe she has a plan for escaping. Maybe not. If I'm going to be stuck here, I might as well keep myself busy. Adam Ava showed me a really bizarre type of zombie the other day called a Girolin zombie? I guess they come from a place called Chult. I don't know. Maybe I can go get stuck there next if I ever get out of this godforsaken mist. To know what a regular Garillon looks like, picture a four-armed gorilla. Frightening, right? I guess the things weigh like a thousand pounds. That's 450 kilos for Adam and Dan. Now, take that, wait until it's dead and rotting away, then raise it into undeath. Terrifying. They come from warm and tropical jungles and forests normally, and I would imagine that means they smell truly horrific. Think about it. Hot, humid jungle and a thousand pounds of rotting gorilla? I think you might smell it right around the same time you spot it. These stinky bastards are large, undead, and are chaotic evil. I guess whatever raised them has an ulterior motive since the Girillon is unaligned. They only have an AC of 11 from natural armor, as they aren't very fast compared to the living variety. They're challenge rating 3. They have only 59 hit points coming from 7d10 plus 21, which feels low for CR3, but they have other things that make them potentially scary. One of those things is a climb speed of 30 feet that pairs with the standard 30 feet walking. These guys can attack from above you. 
They're quite strong creatures. Their dex is slightly above average, and their constitution is well above average. As with most zombies, their intelligence and charisma are abysmally low. Wisdom is below average, but not as bad as the intelligence. Some of their living instincts seem to remain. Just like other zombies, they're immune to poison damage and the poison condition. They have dark vision for 60 feet and a passive perception of 8. I was listening to the orc episodes from a few weeks back via Sending Stone, and the Garillon zombie shares something with our old pals, the orc. They are aggressive. They get to use a bonus action to dash towards a hostile creature they can see. This means they have the ability to climb 30 feet down a tree and then run another 30 feet towards you. Scary stuff. They also get the old zombie classic, Undead Fortitude. Woof. The real balance for their uncharacteristically low hit points for their CR, five attacks. You heard me. One bite and four claw attacks. You didn't think those extra arms were for nothing, did you? All their attacks are five foot reach with plus six to hit and a single target each. The bite attack does 1d6 plus four piercing and the claws do 1d4 plus four slashing. If all of their attacks hit, that's around 31 points of damage in a single turn. Ouch. Three of these things can be a serious problem for a level 5 party. Think about it. You're taking watch for the night and everyone else is asleep. Suddenly the tree branches overhead start shaking violently. Just as you see a trio of shapes descend rapidly from the canopy, a wave of putrid decaying flesh hits your nostrils. Three massive white furred creatures with four arms start pulling themselves down the trunks, exposed bones sticking out of their rotting flesh. You scramble to wake your allies from sleep as the first one gets to you faster than you expect. They start pummeling you and your friends, biting and scratching away. One of them grabs the wizard and starts climbing back up the tree. They're too dumb to run away out of fear, but they're food motivated. Once they have a meal, why would they stick around? That's pretty much the scene I saw through the crystal ball earlier with Madame Ava. Gave me the chills, that poor wizard. Alright guys. I'm going to see if Madame Ava can divine Megan's location and see if she has a way out of here. I hope I'm not too late. You can find me at the Zombie Knight on Instagram. That's the.zombie.knight. Oh, by the way, Adam, uh, Ava said I should warn you about the blue potion. It's not what the merchant told you. Apparently it's a potion of hot snakes. No clue what that means. All right, I'm out. I'm assuming that potion of hot snakes isn't referring to the punk band from California, and I'm hoping it's going to somehow manifest some sexy UNT belly dancers. I think this is just you. Well, and Jeff, apparently. Ah, uh, yeah, I guess that's true. You're not invited to our sexy UNT belly dancer party then, Dan. I want to make a snake pun, but I don't have one. Uh, yeah, you feeling a little rattled? I'm just going to slither away. Good call. Jeff brings up a good point here. Thanks for coming. <laughs> <laughs> Rattling on, all the creatures we discussed last episode are, at their base level, neutral evil, except for the unaligned strawed zombies. Those are the ones that fall apart like trolls. Zombie dinosaurs are unaligned too, and necromancers can be of any alignment. This is literally the only zombie that is chaotic evil, which makes no freaking sense. Because the, regu the regular girl on is unaligned. So what the hell? I don't know, man. I don't know what to tell you on this. I have no idea what to tell you with this. This is the weirdest freaking alignment that I've seen so far. It's almost like they ramp up the territorialness of the Girlon and But it doesn't make any sense with zombification. They're more like they play as more ghoulish than they do zombies, even though they are zombies, right? 
Yeah, they. I really do feel like this is zombie in name only. Yeah, yeah, and so I don't. I don't know. I don't know how to feel about this. I think that it is. Um, well, okay. Look, it says in the flavor text for the Girolan zombies also that they hunger for living flesh, which seems to be at odds with the fact that zombies get the feature called undead nature, which means that they don't need air, food, drink, or sleep. So what the fuck, right? What this- is this detail about? It's not like they're gnolls. Right, they've been driven by deep hunger before they die, but not even witherlings get that hunger in undeath. Like, do you just ignore this detail as a simple incongruency between writers of the books? Do you lean into it? Like, do you use I, them as ghouls? Do you- I, I lean into it and just say they're ghouls. Like, honestly, they're not smart creatures to begin with, so you're not missing anything. Yep. Right. So just make them ghouls. They hunger for flesh. They're ghouls. That is what ghouls do. Yeah. Right? When we talked about in the Knoll episode, we say that sometimes ghouls join Knoll warbands. Why? I can, because they hunger for flesh. I can picture these undead um, Girolons being a part of this, right? Yeah. But, I mean, just to flip it because it's a zombie episode, I would remove that shit and just have them be more... I don't want to say hyperactive, but because they get the climb, because they get... Like, they can be a different kind of scary zombie when you've barricaded yourself in they're climbing up the side of the structure to get in the second story yeah right yeah. so they're the ones that are going to uh jump at you from behind from on like in the shadows on the ceiling right yeah yeah so most zombies get a general trade-off of abilities and speed for the undead trait but there's one kind of zombie that gets all sorts of new and fancy abilities because the zombification gets imbued with the power of the elements covering the frost giant zombie is our buddy kyle who is brazenly exploring the Tomb of Horrors. So this is his one and only clip, eh? Yeah, right? Yeah. So, uh, I mean, that's why we call it the morgue. Yes. Uh, Yeah. He's not going to last long. No. Sorry, Kyle. Thanks, guys. This is Kyle, coming to you live from the Tomb of Horrors on the beautiful Sword Coast. Today, we're talking Frost Giant Zombies. These fearsome, terrifying abominations that were once regular giants, but whose life forces have been twisted by dark, mysterious, necromantic magic in the far reaches of Venmount. Frost Giant Zombies are huge undead creatures and are not to be messed with lightly. Sitting at a decent 15 AC, with their patchwork armor and a respectable 138 hit points, they are fairly easy to hit, but most likely not going down in the first round. Their strength and constitution alone are nothing to sneeze at, with both of them sitting above a 20. And the rest of their stats, well, let's just say they don't need them to smash you into a fine pink paste. For saving throws, they've only got a plus two to wisdom, which I think is a little weird given that it's a mindless zombie roving the frozen wastelands whose only goal is murder and mayhem, but hey, that's just me. Now, they've also got 60 feet of dark vision and a lowly passive perception of 8. And while they can understand giants, they can't speak it. So I wouldn't be expecting any sort of riveting conversation with these guys. They are also immune to cold and poison damage, which makes sense for a frozen zombie. Now, these guys have a badass ability in their always active numbing aura, which means that any creature that starts its turn within 10 feet of these guys is going to have to pass a DC 17 constitution saving throw, or it's going to lose its ability to take more than one attack or use a bonus action, making them a ruthless foe for any martial fighters in a group. So if you've got a pesky barbarian on your hands that's getting a little too big for their britches, 
this may be an enemy to consider throwing at them. They've also got Undead Fortitude, which means that unless the last hit is with fire, radiant damage, or a critical hit, it's not going down without a saving throw. As for their attacks, while they may be simple, they are most definitely effective. Frost Giant Zombies have multi-attack, allowing them to make two weapon attacks per round. They can use their Great Axe, which has a massive plus 10 to hit with a 10-foot reach. Now you combine that with their already impressive 40 feet of movement speed and a gruesome 3d12 plus 6 slashing damage. Unless players have something special up their sleeves, running away is probably not going to be an option. And even if PCs do manage to put some distance between themselves and the giants, the giants will still be able to punish them for their hubris by hurling rocks at them for accurately up to 60 feet or inaccurately up to 240 with another plus 10 to hit, this time dealing 40, 10, plus 6 bludgeoning damage. Now, if that's not bad enough, these monstrosities also come equipped with a freezing stare ability. So instead of using their weapon attacks, they can target a creature up to 60 feet away, forcing them to make another DC 17 constitution saving throw, or else this time it takes 10d6 worth of cold damage and it paralyzes the target until next turn, making an already tough escape even harder. Now I love these guys. I think they are fearsome, and while their tactics may be simple, because I mean, face it, they are as dumb as a bag of warhammers, they still provide a nice challenge to players who are going to have to think hard about how to fight them, and they will get exponentially more difficult the more of them you throw in with their combined auras and freezing stare ability. I think they can be used in quite a few different ways too. Maybe as a nice standalone random encounter as your players slog across an icy tundra or as they scale a mountain trying to reach its peak and you want to throw something fresh into the mix. Maybe they serve as bodyguards to a nefarious necromancer. Or they could even act as siege weapons, trying to bash down the gates of a town in front of an oncoming horde. I think you do maybe want to be careful mixing them in with other creatures though, considering they are mindless murder beasts and their numbing aura affects all creatures, not just enemies. But homebrew gonna homebrew, you know? Anyways, folks, I gotta get back to the morgue. These bodies are not gonna autopsy themselves. So until next time, stay frosty. Adam and Dan, back to you. All right, what's neat here is that the ice elemental inside the frost giant maintains the frost giant's original 12d12 plus 6 hit points and 40 feet of movement. Even the AC and attacks don't go down numerically. Jeez. Right, so this zombie is already super powered. A regular frost giant is CR8, but these guys step up to be the nasty CR9. That's right? the first like, we've really seen of like something taking that next form into like and gaining a CR from going into zombies. Uh, unless you include commoners up to zombies. Okay. Right. But generally speaking, you're right. Yeah. Um, so I don't know. As for the wisdom saving throw of plus two that he was trying to decipher, I think it's safe to say that it just got another additional boost from the elementalism inside it. Right? Sure. Uh, these guys have a different flavor because they're from Wildmount. They got a different flavor for the, uh, like, how necromancy works. So they've got this, like, amulet or gem or something that's been pushed into them that they've yeah, got yeah. to give them this extra special bonus. I'm not going to pull these guys out for just any zombie fight, right? They're going to be a special, unique kind of necromancer pet or henchman. These are a centerpiece. Something. They are. Yeah. Or at least centerpiece adjacent. Um, 
that's also made true by this numbing aura and freezing stare abilities that they have that are just brutal. Yeah. The thing is meant to remove one spellcaster and limit all melee attacks every single round. Losing a turn is brutal at the best of times, but taking 10d6 cold damage every time you have to do it is rough beyond measure. Especially when your monk or rogue, who rely on their bonus action, are ineffective in close range. Yeah, I really do feel like... with, I mean, I know that it is a con save, so your barbarians are probably going to shrug it off. But you're in for a bad fucking time fighting one of these things. Yeah, especially if you're a rogue or a monk where you rely on that... You're not relying on your constitution. Yeah. Right? You're relying on your not getting hit, not your being able to take a hit. Yeah, much like we were going to like bump up the the zombie T-Rex, right, to a CR9 by having it disgorged no matter what. Yeah. Um, this CR9 is rough. It's brutal. This one hurts. He's going to take fucking chunks out of you, right? And I'm, I'm getting more and more of that when I look into the other campaign settings as well. Um, the, like I said, this one's from Wildmount, but... We often complain about power creep in the classes and the imbalance in the playable races. And I still think that tougher and weirder monsters, though, are okay. Yeah, they're never a bad thing. No. I Honestly, they add weird, unique encounters to your more experienced players. And they, they probably won't know like what they're getting into, which is always good. Some of the best encounters I've had in recent memory are ones where you're like, here's this thing. I'm like, oh, it's just a troll. And you're like, no, it's not. And the troll does something weird, like yeah. breathe fire or some shit. And I'm just like, okay, this is real. It was your goblins. You had snake infused goblins. That's the one that's really sticking out to me now. <laughs> yeah. We basically had goblin malisons, right? Yeah. And yeah, that was weird and had me on the edge of my seat. I was a I was a dragonborn paladin fighting goblins. Could not get more textbook D and D than that, except for the you know one goblin that had a fifteen foot long neck and the one with snakes for arms. Yep, and that one over there that can spit acid, and this one unhinges its jaw and swallows small creatures. And yeah, like, yeah, no, there was there was some cool body horror in there. Yeah, but and you get that with some of these other um, campaign settings. Yeah, I really love these alternatives. Uh, we've talked more than once about the Dolgaunts and their Dolgrims, like the inside-out Hobgoblin. Yeah. Right? Like, oh, there's so much cool shit. That, that, that one's from Eberron. But I don't know. I just find that it makes problem-solving a little bit more fun and interesting for the mm-hmm. experienced players that love the game but have seen every fucking knoll in existence 40 times. Just remember, though, your players are going to cry foul if their regular tactics fail them against something that's unique. When they're expecting one thing and then suddenly this zombie frost giant is hitting you with you know gaze attacks and has an aura right they're gonna say that this is homebrew and this is bullshit and this is weird but that's why you have to telegraph this shit early yeah make make paints that intimidating picture before you get into it make your experienced players like dan hesitate and sit on the edge of their seat to wait and find out what crazy bullshit is going to come up next and experienced players be open to bullshit yeah Anyways, last week Adam promised another weird kind of zombie that operated under slightly different rules, like the husk zombie does. If you recall, those are the guys that. Oh yeah, they no, they weren't just the bursters; those ones with the fog. Oh yeah, yeah. Well, we turn to our resident conservationist in Eberron to bring the conversation to Chult one last time for a plant-based undead. Hey guys, Dave again. I'm uh, still sitting up here in the reaches for reasons that I'm not going to quite disclose just yet. 
But, uh, I mean, last time we were talking about zombies, and I mean, we're doing that again today. So I thought I'd go over some other strange creature, zombie-esque, that uh, I come across here in my travels. So, uh, And that is the yellow musk creeper and the yellow musk zombie. Now, you got to understand that these are like, you know the game Plants vs. Zombies? This is when they join forces and try to take over the world together, okay? Now, a yellow musk creeper... Uh, is a vine that kind of looks like an orchid. It's yellow and purple and all that crap. But it creates this smell. It describes it as a musk that attracts its prey. Uh, now, it clings to walls and everything. Like, it it grows up. It, it creeps, hence the creeper, right? Uh, it goes up the walls and over, and it can be above you, below you, around you. It can be just about anywhere. Uh, but, specifically, shadowy locations, okay? These things don't thive in the sunlight. Now... They also sit up there uh, until they're ready to strike. They are, think of them like a Venus flytrap, kind of always open, waiting to strike, okay? Now, the yellow musk creeper destroys uh, its, its enemies and then implants bulbs into its victims. 24 hours later, after being implanted, the bulb sprouts its own vine and the host comes to life. The corpse animates itself, right? It's, this is how you don't use necromancy to get a zombie okay when it becomes animated this becomes the yellow musk uh, zombie so in addition to protecting the plant it can also act as like a fertilizer for the for the creeper vines uh, which allows them to grow to their full size in about a week they, once they grow they become mobile and burst from the zombie host whereupon the zombie just kind of falls to the ground dead all right so the yellow musk creeper themselves okay these things I mean, they're a plant. They're easy to hit. Their AC is 6. Uh, but they do have a lot of hit points. 11 D8 plus 11. I mean, that's quite a bit for a plant. Uh, it's got a speed of 5 feet and a climb of 5 feet. So these things, again, they sit and they wait to strike. Okay? Uh, their strength is a little above average, as is their constitution. Their wisdom is average. But their dexterity, intelligence, and charisma are the pits. They are not good at all, which of course, they're a plant. They are immune to the blinded, deafened, exhaustion, and prone conditions. And they do have blindsight out to 30 feet and a passive perception of 10. They don't speak any languages and they are CR2, okay? So they got a little bit, but not a lot. Again, they are a plant. Uh, now, for its abilities, it does have a couple of different ones. The first one is False Appearance. Well, the creeper remains motionless, you can't distinguish it from other plants. It just looks like it fits in. Uh, all right, it also has regeneration. It regains 10 hit points at the start of every turn, and if it takes fire, necrotic, or radiant damage, it doesn't function at the start of next turn. So if it takes any of those kinds of damage, it doesn't get to regen uh, at the beginning of the next turn, okay? The creeper dies only if it starts its turn with zero hit points and doesn't regenerate. So, that's a lot to handle. If you take it down to zero hit points, and then at the beginning of its next turn, it gets ten back, unless you have done fire, necrotic, or radiant damage to it. Like, I don't know how, like, a monk that doesn't have a torch is going to finish these off. It's going to be very difficult, because they don't inherently do fire, necrotic, or radiant damage. Whereas uh, a paladin does with a smite, any spellcaster has uh, evocations they can use. Uh, now, for its actions... Uh, it has a couple. Uh, the first one is touch. It's a plus three to hit, melee, weapon attack, 
Uh, it reaches five feet and it can attack one creature. On a successful hit, it does 3d8 psychic damage. If the target is a humanoid that drops to zero hit points as a result of the damage, that humanoid will die and become implanted with the yellow musk creeper bulb. Unless the bulb is destroyed, then the corpse comes back as a yellow musk zombie after 24 hours. The bulb is destroyed if the creature is raised from the dead before it can transform into a yellow musk zombie, if the corpse is targeted by a removed curse, uh, or similar magic before it animates. So you can get rid of it. I would probably also let my players do a medicine check to, like, reach into their, you know, companion and find the bulb and pull it out. That's gnarly, and it's going to require a high DC, but I would probably play with that a little bit. In addition to the touch attack, it also has... Oh, take me back to 3.5 right there, touch attack. Uh, but in addition to that, it also has an ability called Yellow Musk, which it can do three times a day, where the uh, Yellow Musk Creeper, the flowers of it, release a musk that all humanoids within 30 feet can sense. Then each one of them must make a DC... 11 wisdom save or be charmed by the creature for one minute uh, a creature that is charmed does nothing on its turn except move as close as it can to the creeper however if you are charmed by the creeper you can repeat the save at the end of each of its turns uh, and it ends the effect on a success so it's going to try to bring you in and, and make you stand there and while you're charmed make a little bulb in you now, in addition to the Yellow Musk Creeper, there is the Yellow Musk Zombie, which these things will hang around and act as a protector or fertilizer for the Creeper themselves. But the Zombie, once it you know becomes animated from the, the Yellow Musk Creeper, uh, it does have some interesting stats. Now, its AC is 9, which is one more than a regular Zombie, but it does have 68 plus 6 hit points, so it's a little beefier. They are still slow. Their speed's 20 feet. The strength and constitution are a little above average, but not by much. Dex is a little below average, and of course, the word zombie's in it, so its intelligence, wisdom, and charisma are relatively low. The yellow musk zombie is immune to the charmed and exhaustion conditions. It does have blind sight out to 30 feet and passive perception of 8 doesn't speak any languages and its challenge rating is one quarter. Again, this thing has uh, undead fortitude. I mean, it's a zombie. Of course it does. They also get a slam attack, which is a melee weapon attack. They're plus three to hit, a reach of five feet, and they do 1d8 plus one bludgeoning damage, which I believe is a little bit more than a regular zombie. I think they just do a 1d6. So uh, having these guys patrolling outside of a tower that looks completely overgrown, that your players have been told there's something inside that they need to get to, uh, it might be a good way to uh, incorporate these into your campaign. I kind of like the idea of having the zombies kind of work on the, the outside. And then once you get past those, you're like, oh, that's not so bad because they think it's just regular zombies. And then they get inside and realize that, oh, shit, wait a minute. That's not okay. In addition, okay, these guys have blind sense, both the, the creeper and the zombie. And what I like about that is you can have these guys lurking around in the dark. If you want to build a slow, dark uh, dungeon where your players are creeping through and the tension just starts building and building and you have these things and you want to maybe incorporate them somehow where the, you know, you, you're just getting the noises from them in the background as your players are trying to sneakily get through and maybe around these guys and stuff. I think that might be a really fun way to use these zombies in addition to just having them as regular old zombies. 
the, the blind sense don't underestimate it like you can use that even though they're a CR one quarter with the with the zombies moving around that gives you an incredible advantage if your party doesn't have dark vision or if for some reason it's magical darkness uh, these things can still get around with their blind sense you can use that to your advantage to build a lot of tension they go hand in hand together uh, anyways, I'm going to send it back to Adam and Dan. If you guys want to get a hold of me, you can always find me on the subreddit r slash it's a mimic. Uh, I got to go. I got some more prophecy to look at, guys. So I'll talk to you later. Dave is a fucking poet, Dan. He said the phrase, while you are charmed, it makes a little bulb in you. And that is disgusting. And I love it. It's super gross. Yeah. 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 Bulb. So, do you pick out the terrifying... Bulb. I'm not done saying bulb. Bulb. It leads me to bulbous. Which leads me to bulbasaur, and now I'm thinking about Pokemon. Uh, I'm not. So, Adam, did you catch that terrifying detail of the yellow musk creeper? It's another one of these no death saves attack. It hits you with 3d8 psychic damage, and if you reach zero hit points, you're dead. Not spare the dying. No stabilization. You're dead. I love these. Although, this is how I killed one of Terry's characters with the Death Tyrant. With one of these no death save. When you reach zero hit points, if you see in a stat block, it say, if it reaches hero, or zero hit points, you are going to kill a character. Like, yes. This is a major issue. Make sure that they've got uh, the ability to revivify. We have said so many times that D&D 5e has propped up survivability on the player side with this death save mechanic. Yeah. So much so that these abilities rip that crutch out from under your players. And now players are walking around with three hit points being like, I'm fine. I've got death saves. Bitch, you know you don't. And there's no way to actually show them or imply that there's no death saves coming. Even if you kill an NPC in front of them, NPCs tend not to get death saves, right? So how do you give this, how do you imply this mechanic to your players? They drop and you just say, no man, no death saves, you're fucked. Out of nowhere, that's not fair, right? And it's so scary. You have to really be creative with your narrative and telegraph these things ahead of time. Um, the one way I would do it is have the effect, if it, if I telegraphed it on an NPC or something, have the effect twist the body so that it, it decays at a, a supernatural rate or it, um, like I want to describe the death in such a way that the he players, he doesn't just fall unconscious. He gets his head snapped backwards in under a second and his eyes Bulge out. Yeah, like, uh, uh, yellow mold grows from its uh, from any orifice and just any covers their entire body in an instant. Right, you hear the gasping, shuddering sound of life, and then nothingness. Right, like there's there's you got to telegraph it in the description. If not, really, really hope your cleric, your druid, your barbarian, your ranger are paying fucking attention and roll their nature checks. Yep. Which brings me actually to the next thing. Dave said that he would have them get to do a medicine check to find the bulb that gets implanted. I'm going to make you do a nature check first, right? To yeah, even to know, that, that, know that. that that's even a thing, right? Yeah. Unless you've got some sort of NPC that's warning them about it ahead of time that doesn't manage to die from this fucking creeper in the first place, right? I, I'm not going to just let you know. 
you have got to figure this out because those zombies are going to stand back up. I know it's 24 hours later, yeah. right? So you're probably going to be a day's travel away. But these zombies are going to stand back up. These corpses are going to become the walking dead. Yeah. The fun thing about these guys that I especially like is that they're not immune to poison or the poison condition like every other zombie. That just drives home the point that they're a different kind of creature entirely. Even the undead fortitude requires fire damage as opposed to the standard radiant dead damage. This is why, like, really flip it on their head when your players are used to zombies, when they got it all figured out, like, yeah, 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 more undead, and then the radiant doesn't affect them. That's going to be a big deal. So, how do you plan out this kind of encounter? Do you show them the, the zombies first? Or do you have the creepers be your initial point of contact and then zombies be a nasty surprise after? How do you go about this, Dan? Uh, I go zombies first. Yeah. Yeah. That's what Dave said too. Yeah. Go go zombie first with like little, uh, I don't sprouts or something to telegraph that maybe there's something weird about the... Uh, there's a flower, like they're naked zombies. So there's a flower over each nipple and the genitals. Sure. I was thinking more like a sprout coming out of the top of their head or something. That's just because you like zombie genitals. No, I like plants versus zombies. I don't know. I like the idea of having it be the creeper first. They were into this plant thing and they they fight it and they don't realize how fucking deadly it was the first time they fight one of these. And then you run into a bunch of zombies and you're like, wait a minute, why does it, why do they have the same yellow flowers growing out of them as well? And then you run into a ruin that is just choked with these things. Oh yeah. Right. So you you drop the creeper first and then let them know that they got away scot-free. Anyway, before we move on, I just want to say thank you to everyone that's been sticking with us. We've got this new weird format that we're doing and and it's uh it's a bit of a freaking process on our end. And I want to thank all of the guys that should be here in the studio with us in our guild hall going yeah. through all this. Um, but they're stuck in their own little caverns and they're they're taverns taverns and caverns wherever it is where they are off in but like we miss you guys we miss talking with all of our fans as well who have all kind of just gotten a little quiet during the covid season yeah (laughs) and we're all kind of in a low point right now we want to say thanks to everyone for sticking with us and we are excited to get people back in the studio we hope everybody stays safe out there it we're hearing rumbles of a vaccine coming which means we should be getting back to normal sometime in the next handful of months. Yeah. I would just want to remind everybody that you can find us on Instagram, Facebook, and at r slash It's a Mimic on Reddit. You can always reach out to us through our email as well at info at It's a Mimic.com because we love hearing from all of you guys. And any questions that you send us will get added to the lists for our upcoming mailbag episodes. So Adam, week two is Zombies. Let's break down structures here. Let's break down how we're going to run these guys in groups, the implications we see from these stat blocks. Let's roll the dice and let's talk about that real sure. quick. I got a three. I got a 13. Honestly, a lot of these guys are fairly removed. They are set piece encounters. So, uh, I like the dino zombies. Um, and if I had a Land of the Lost level campaign, I would have... Well, isn't that what Tomb of Annihilation is? It really, it really is. Well, and the, frankly, that, both of the dinosaurs and the Yellow Musk Creeper come from the Tomb of Annihilation. Yeah, it's got really cool undead options in there. I mean, when you have a Sarak going around doing the crazy shit he does and the other undead characters that are in there doing the shit they do, um, it really filled that campaign out. I want to play Tomb of Annihilation again because of it. Um, but... 
having an encounter of a bunch of undead, I don't know, stegosauruses or ankylosauruses or triceratops fighting a bunch of undead albertosauruses or T-Rexes or velociraptors. I like zombie pterodons too. Like go to the sky. Yeah, that would be brutal, right? I, I love all of that. Honestly, I look at these, you say they're set piece encounters and for the most part, I think they are. Um, I don't see a problem with dropping an ogre in in there, a zombified ogre. Mm-hmm. Um, I would also use the ogre stats for like Ettens and other things as well. I'm not going to frig with it too much. I might adjust their hit points, but keep it relatively the, the same. I have trouble thinking about a zombie troll because they fall apart. You got to burn them. Like yeah. you're not going to, if you are, I'm going to use the ash zombie rule as well because sure, they yeah. burned. Right. So um, I'm going to apply these kind of um, these stats. I'm going to look at how the uh, Ankylosaurus and the uh, T-Rex would apply to the herbivores and the carnivores for other beasts and monstrosities as well. Okay. Um, but I'm not really going to add these in and among a zombie horde. I do have one question, Adam, since you've done a lot of this research into these things. We see this frost giant zombie. Yeah. Is there a fire giant alternative? Is there a storm giant alternative? There, like there aren't, but it doesn't take much for you to turn around and add the elemental nature to everyone. There's no ice elemental in Fifth Ed, so they've done a fucking homebrew on that anyway. Yeah, and I know that's Matt Mercer, right? Because it is from Wildmount. Yeah, but it doesn't take much for you to add a fire elemental or an earth elemental or something to the same kind of aura and a gaze attack of some sort. Right? Yeah. Um. They are more versatile. I would like to use these guys as a fuck you set piece as well. If I'm in the Arctic, when I've got the uh, ice wind cobalt zombies as well. Yeah. Right. Like we've got a couple of cold themed zombies. The other thing about the ice wind cobalt zombies that I know they were last episode, but they did inspire something. And especially now that we're talking heavily about Chult. Chult has those goblins that stand in the totem pole. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Why are we not seeing zombie those? Well, I don't think they'll stand in the in the totem pole. They'll I don't just, know. Like they just get stuck to the wood of the totem pole, and the bottom one is just like teetering it around. I know it's probably more towards the uh, the comedy side of things. You could make it more horror based if like it's not hard to. Yeah, we we that. went over how to homebrew, um, like add the template and whatnot too for zombies last episode. Yeah. Um, I am really going to look for the inspiration for um, at the zombies that exist already and find out what exactly I can do. The greater zombie from last episode really inspired me, the Ash zombie yep. as well, to have beefier or um, more. I mean, between the Ash zombie, who is based on the fact that it's been burned, mm-hmm. right? The husk zombie that's full of this horrible fog. The frost giant zombie who's... Um, I got all these ice powers. You can see how the elements and the environment and stuff is really going to affect how the zombie operates as well. And so I'm going to look into that kind of stuff too. If you've got a necromancer, remember a necromancer is just a kind of wizard and wizards like to do experiments. There's no reason why you couldn't have three or four additional arms grafted on to a zombie and then have it give it the gear on attacks, right? Yeah, yeah. So you can start to think outside the box when it comes to this level of undead. Um thinking about outside of the box adam what we do best here let's let's throw some inspiration out for some plot hooks um and a mini campaign idea for these guys okay sure a plot hook first let's go 
I got a 14. I got an 18. Okay, so um, you wanted a plot hook first? Yeah. Uh, my plot hook is actually going to be for the Frost Giant. They've got this unique item, this gem or amulet or, or icon, whatever it is. Go get it. Okay. Go get it and release the ice elemental. Cool. Right? We learned in Eberron that elementals do not like to be bound to shit. Right? And we have all sorts of water and air and fire and earth. But you never come across an ice elemental. Not until you're dealing with like methods. Yeah. Right? Which is nothing really. It's piddly bullshit. So I really, really like the idea of an ice elemental. Kind of, I mean, we got uh, an icy thing, I think, in uh, Ravnica as well. One of their weirds was was icy. So there's a little bit of precedence, but you're not going to see it everywhere. And I like the idea of of unleashing this. And honestly, I would kind of reskin a water elemental. Just to do cold damage? Uh, Yeah, just to be a little bit more solid and less liquidy. Sure. Um, For me, kind of the same, but it's, there's someone who has gone missing. That you must go find. And uh, and he's in the stomach of a T-Rex? He's in the stomach of a T-Rex. That's beautiful. I could see the twinkle in your eye and I knew you were going. Yeah. Uh, I just... It could even be flipping on its head. You get the T-Rex first. You kill the T-Rex. It explodes. You kill the zombies. And you realize, oh shit, that one's important. Yeah. Right? Um, And then dealing with that after the fact, right? Uh, It's the old... I found the locket with the engraving. And now we have to figure out who this own, uh, who this belongs to, Right? That level thing, except, like, who's this decayed head belong to, I guess. I got something that's kind of fun and neat. Now, we got the Icewind Cobalt Zombies. If you take the Icewind off of them and you make them just Cobalt Zombies, and you've got, let's say, a Gracolich. Oh, 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 okay. There's Sorry, I jumped the gun. That's my campaign. Yeah, yeah, no, okay, sure. We're moving on to campaigns. Yeah. You got undead dragon cults. I love it. Yeah, that's that's crazy bad shit. Uh, Orcus and Tiamat have teamed up. Shit, that's a terrifying mix. Yeah, especially since Tiamat lives on freaking Avernus. Yeah, <laughs> you think Asmodeus is going to be okay with Tiamat teaming up with? Oh, absolutely not. You're in for some blood war shit. Oh yeah, but your intro to that is going to be through fucking zombie kobolds, and you guys are going to be like, "What the shit?" and just toe punch them around. Yeah, until. You know, and you can you can theme it scaly. I know that dinosaurs and dragons are not the same thing, but it would be fun to have a whole bunch of zombie dinosaurs as part of this. I said I didn't like them as mounts. I like them with kobolds on their backs. Okay. Just like swarming with undead kobolds? Well, yeah. I, I would have like to come up with... Like a howda of undead kobolds? I, I like the idea of there being these kobolds. That maybe there's a couple of kobold necromancers that are low on the list. Okay. And I know that kobolds have a little bit of, of arcane magic to them, but all they need is an item, right? To let them raise dead. One of them's waving around the wand of Orcus. Oh, no. <laughs> that is a fun <laughs> campaign. Hey, that's my campaign idea. There you go. A goblin finds the wand of Orcus. Chaos. <laughs> booyak! Booyak, booyak, booyak. <laughs> oh, I just imagine like summoning like... What is what is 300 times 300? It's, it's 90,000. 90, so 90,000 zo- like base level zombies stand up Jesus. all minions cuz a cuz a goblin waved a wand the wrong way Jesus that can't be right what's your math on that uh well no it's it, it would be three it would be 9000 wouldn't it 300 times 300 no nope. what's your math on it Dan where are you getting these numbers from 
Let's break it down. Well, the radius is 300, so it's not. It's, it's six. Just, no, no. So it's 300 feet, right? Yeah. Divided by five, so that's 60 squares. 60 squares, yeah. Right? But they're small creatures, so you can fit two in a square? No. I wouldn't say that. No, you can for tiny. You can for tiny, not small. Yeah. So look, there's still one a square. So so that's, what did I say, 60 squares? 60 square radius, so 120 square diameter. No, 125, because you're in the middle. Okay. So 125 times 125, which is a whole hell of a lot less than 90,000. That's that's true. I mean, it's still a lot. That's uh, 15,625. Yeah, uh, 15,000 freaking cobalt zombies. That's that's fun. Yeah. yeah. That's fun. You now have a problem. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, all right, Adam. We do want to do a little bit more of a deep dive here into necromancers and the yellow musk creepers and how they can change your zombie horde let's talk necromancers first speaking of necromancers i don't know if, if the mic just picked it up i didn't have my ringtone turned off it just dinged i got a message from dave who's playing DD right now he's dming he's doing mad mage and he just killed two players oh no david no oh yeah what happened well you've been if you've listened to the last few um mob episodes he's a little he doesn't he doesn't have a whole lot of respect for his players i want to say kyle is one of his players so i'm wondering i I don't know how this goes we're gonna find out before the next okay uh before the next episode but i will say this if you were to ask dave what happened i bet you 10 to 1 he's gonna say my players were fucking stupid (laughs) it isn't that the method that you like that is how he feels about Yeah, Yeah. yeah okay so necromancers how can they change your typical zombie horde let's roll Real quick, on encounter structures and ideas for plot hooks. I already rolled. I got a natural one. All right, so um, look, it's very simple and straightforward. These guys, a necromancer has brains. Yeah. They're going to direct and control the horde. This, this is unleashing the spearhead of zombies, right? Like this, this is... This is where it comes from and why. One of the things that I would say, though, is you have... When you're dealing with a necromancer NPC or a villain specifically, you need to get rid of the idea of how many zombies can you control in a round and just have it be fucking all, all of them. them. Yeah. Right? You need to get rid of the idea of um, of where does this zombie plague come from? It's not a plague. It is this one guy. There is intelligence to it now. Your zombies can now start to pull apart bricks or use doorknobs. If the necromancer can sit there and command them to, right? You're upping the intelligence level of the zombies just by having a necromancer give them simple um, direction. Mm-hmm. I would say that Orcus does not even need to do this verbally. He just, at does. a whim, yeah, controls anything within that 300 feet, let's say, right? So... This breaks it open so that the environment is... We say that zombies are an environmental hazard, right? For the most part. The, uh, that environment now has a will. It's sentient. The only thing I'm going to say is that... I got a question, Dan. If you kill a necromancer, what happens to the zombies? Are they free range? Or do they all fall over and die? They're free range. I agree with you unless you've got some sort of item, some MacGuffin that is letting somebody... If the, oh, if you have an item that is pow- like someone has used an item to create all these zombies and you kill that person, yep. that item still exists. You have to destroy the item to get rid of the zombies. Or use them to will them into regular death again. True, but an item that powerful is going to corrupt the will of whoever uses it and 
this is going to be a one ring with uh, Frodo all over again. I 100% right? agree. Um, let's talk about the yellow musk creepers. I'm like, charisma saves to, to even use it. Yeah, right? And if you use it, you're making that save a disadvantage. Yeah, all right. Um, yellow, yellow musk creepers. Let's talk about this. Same thing. 13. 14. Man, you're just not having any luck. Eh? No, no. Um, the yellow musk creeper for like an encounter. I mean, we kind of broke this down a little bit already. Dave talked a bit about putting the yellow musk creeper in absolute darkness because they have blind sense, which means that you don't even get the warning of, hey, there's flowers and shit. That's a little excessive. I like putting it above the players on like a cave wall or something growing well, up a wall. I mean, they do creep. It's five foot movement in any yeah. direction, including up, up. vertical surfaces, yep. right? So um, we I, all know how terrifying the um, uh, creatures that fall from the sky, uh, dark mantles are. Right? Imagine if that zombie shit happening, falling from the sky. Yeah. Yeah. I, I like the idea, too, that, that these zombies are used as essentially fertilizer for the plants. Right? Yeah. So I think that even though the zombies are moving around and, and attacking and whatnot, if they're sitting there still, it makes perfect sense that these creepers would wrap the zombie up, pull it up into a high location, and just feed off of the corpse as it rots out. So when you walk into a room, there are zombies, there are undead that are wrapped up in vines attached to the ceiling and high up on the walls. And oh. as you walk in, the zombies start to drop. Would you use yellow musk creepers with, I don't know, myconid zombies? Myconids and stuff have their own spore servants and whatnot, so I don't think that I would mix that. Okay. Those two, like, they're, they're different flavors, and I think you're just going to muddy the waters. Okay. They're close enough that, I don't know, I, I probably wouldn't. Um, but I can definitely see a zombie veggie pygmies. Sure. Right. You yeah. can really lean into the plants. I like the, oh, a zombie treant would be fun too, right? Ooh. So like just simply adding. How are those not blighters? Wouldn't a blighter be really. You mean a blight? A blight? Yeah. Wouldn't those be basically zombie treants? No, blights have some, they've got a base level of intelligence, like not D&D &D imp, but imp level level of intelligence. Oh, yeah, like okay. they're going to be. Um, they will retreat. They've got some basic, like, I need to survive, whereas zombies don't, right? Yeah. They've got a mentality there. So, um, yeah, I like the idea of, of dropping them from the ceiling. That's, that's, that's really cool. Walking into a room and looking up and seeing just zombies trapped in vines all around you, just, like, writhing and, and wriggling. That's metal as shit. I love it. Yeah, and then and they don't even fall to the ground. I think that the vines lower them. To the ground and then release them. Undead marionettes. Oh, that's oh, fun. So good. Megan would hate that. We're doing it. Anyways, so that is all we could find on 5e on zombies. But we've got lots of other kind of mobs to cover. Don't forget to come back next week when we take a look at more undead in skeletons. That's it for this episode of the It's a Mimic podcast. If you'd like to support us, you could head over to www.itsamimic.com and hit our fancy donate button or... Tell your friends and the rest of your D&D party about the podcast. We're available on iTunes, Spotify, and YouTube, as well as most podcast apps. Stay safe out there. Thank you for listening to another It's a Mimic production. Inquiries, shoutouts, requests, and mailbag questions can be sent to info at itsamimic.com. I'm really curious. If zombies were to happen, which I'm still not convinced that they won't, what is your getaway plan? Does it include people outside of your household? What if you're not 
in your household? Like, give, give me, give me like the plan because I know you guys have thought about it. Okay, what do you guys do? It. I mean, my plan is to grab all my guns and ammo and canned food and probably some fresh stuff too. Fill up as many containers as I can with water. And hit the back roads. Okay, I I know the back roads trails. I can get out of the city by road where I know a lot of people can't. I know how to do that. And I would be willing to take people along with me if they've got the material to make it happen. That being said, I know a place that I'm going to go that I could survive a winter and even longer. That would be close to a town that I could scavenge from. All right, guys, I got it figured out. But I want to know what your plan is. Let's roll. Let's roll. <laughs> Nine. You just five. Can't, God, you just can't I cannot win. win this episode. All right. Okay, Adam, what's your zombie plan? And and be concise, because I know you could rattle on for a half hour, an hour, two hours. I've got a Google Doc about this. Of course, as a matter you do. of fact. So are um, there spreadsheets? Uh, no. There, there's a number of different documents. Each one of them is like there's a folder labeled. You know, uh, one of them is just on uh, bicycle repair because bikes are the preferred method of of moving okay. in the zombie apocalypse. They don't make noise. They don't require gas, and they're easy to maintain with a simple kit. Okay. And they can get you traveling at up to like 60 kilometers an hour, right? Like the, like you can really get moving quickly. Mm-hmm. They're easy to pick up and carry over barriers with bikes at the end. Anyway, I, I have some thoughts and opinions. <laughs> but let me tell you, I'm sticking to suburbia. A lot of people are going to try to escape and get on the road and get out of town like Dave was talking about. And if you can do that, that is a great idea. But I'll tell you now, you can't. Because everyone is doing it. Mm-hmm. And the last thing you want to do in a zombie apocalypse is go where the masses are, yeah. right? And that is highways. That's hospitals and malls and highways. But you know where everybody is not going, where everyone's leaving? Suburbia. I'm staying in suburbia because there are canned foods and shit all over the place. There are pets, which are early warning systems or food if you're really fucked. Yeah. And one of the things that I'm going to do is I'm going to leave my house... I don't want anybody to come into to my place. I'm going to pick the appropriate place to go. I'm going to loot all of the different houses that, that are around. But one of the things I'm looking for are car keys, specifically the remote, because every one of them has a panic button on it. So when the zombies figure out which house you're in, you can hit the panic button and send them to somewhere else on the street when you make your escape. Hmm. That's smart. And it's not a big deal to move into the next suburban house, jumping backyard to backyard. Because you know what I can do that zombies can't? Jump, motherfucker. So fences are my best friend in the world. <laughs> and at any given point, when I walk into any room, the zomb- uh, look, The Walking Dead and zombie fiction gets this kind of wrong. The idea that there are zombies that are lurking in rooms, they wouldn't. They'd be standing at the windows trying to get out. They're standing at the at the glass door. So break the door and let them out. Break the window and let them through. They're going to trip. They're going to fall. And that's a headshot. You're done. Yeah. And then now you have a house to get into. Right. And you sure should clear the house and, and look around. But I bet it's relatively empty because everyone has left suburbia. And if there's a zombie inside of it, you know that all the canned foods, all the goods, all the weapons, whether it's a baseball bat or a rifle in a gun case, it's all in there. Still, right? Yeah. Every single house is a mini cache. Don't go to a mall. Everyone's going to a mall. Don't, I, I've said in the past, I would go to a liquor store because liquor is going to be not only good disinfectant, but good for Molotov cocktails. And it's worth its weight in gold for trading yeah. with other survivors. 
but every suburban house has a liquor stash. Why would you not just go pick up four or five bottles? You can't carry 90 bottles anyway. No, that's true. Right? So I'm going to have this spread out maze. I'm If I think I can get away with it, I will drive the cars around to block ends of the streets, drive them up into yards and shit. Suburbia is the way to go. You've got water. You've got enough toilets. You can shit in a different one every day of the week. Right? <laughs> if you have your own little block to work with or yep. a cul-de-sac. Find a gated community. Yeah. Suburbia is the way to go. Well, the problem with the gated community is that people can't get out either. So the zombies are in there. We saw that on The Walking Dead. Yeah. Right? Like the zombies in a gated community are a problem. I want one where everyone has left. And the zombies won't stay still. Zombies in downtown or in a mall or shopping mall or whatnot, when there's nobody in there, they just kind of meander. But think about every time that there's been... Look, you look at what happened with COVID, Right? With all of the animals coming back and taking over again as we started to calm yeah. down briefly. Those deer, those dogs and cats, the pets, the bears and coyotes and raccoons and stuff will lure the zombies around. They're not going to sit still in suburbia, on suburban streets. Mm-hmm. They're going to move out. They're going to clear out. When they do, you barricade yourself in. And you've got all the tools to do it in those garages. I'm telling you, suburbia is the right way. Just don't do it in the heart of suburbia. Do it on the outskirts of suburbia. Hit a place like where I live, right at the edge of like a forested area. Yeah. Yeah. I like that. Um, Honestly, knowing you, uh, knowing Dave, uh, my my big zombie survival plan is meet up with you or Dave somewhere. Because I know you've got the plan and Dave's got the tools. Yeah, no, that's, that's pretty fair. Dave's plan, of course, to get out of town is not a bad one. No. But I am going to try to meet up with some like-minded people. One of the big problems that I have with zombie fiction is the fact that everyone is a loner by the time that they all meet up. No, man. You're stronger together in groups. Yeah, and you fucking know it. You and your friends, your family need to get together. Because when you do get whittled down to a smaller number of people and it starts to be the person versus person part of the zombie apocalypse, you've got allies from your previous life that are going to back you no matter what. Yeah. Right? And you are going to live... By being in a group. Not a large group. A small group. Large groups are not sustainable. Anything above, I think my math was 17 people, is going to be non-sustainable in a zombie apocalypse. Between 17 and I think it's 150. That Hmm. range is hard. Because the food does not outweigh the labor. Hmm. Okay. You have to learn how to farm. And it takes a while to, to get that farming up and running. And so you cannot scavenge or hunt enough to maintain a group that big. You have to become nomadic. At which point you're not secure when you're nomadic, so the zombies will hunt you down, right? But if you have 150 people, you have enough people producing enough food with enough scavenging parties with enough people around you to, as security to be able to be a little bit more efficient. So that's that's my basic math for my zombie nerdism. Welcome to Adam's TED Talk. Fuck. <laughs> I, should, I should do a special episode just on fucking zombie tactics and shit. Thank you for listening to an It's a Mimic production. (laughs) Okay, you're done. Get it.